and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me is... Catherine! And we are here this week to discuss a film that I'm going to go ahead and hazard a guess that uh, you don't know, listener. <laughs> um, mm. I, this may be presumptuous of me as a, a humble internet man, but most people that I talk to are completely unaware that this film exists. And that film is Clive Barker's, you have to put Clive Barker's in front of it, Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions, a 1995 neo-noir slash demon exorcism hell movie from the mind, both directed and written by Clive Barker. Demon exorcism, yay! That's right, demon exorcisms with a Dashiell Hammett slash Philip Marlowe slash detective story at the middle of it um this is i'll be honest right off the bat this is one of my weirdest loves when it comes to film it came out in 95 i was 15 i guess just the right age for this weird mix of genre storytelling it starred at the time america's dad uh, Scott Bakula, mm-hmm. who had just come off the highly successful Quantum Leap train. Yeah. And uh, of course, everybody loved Quantum Leap, and he was obviously looking to diversify. This is a different vibe. Get for away. Him. <laughs> it is a very different vibe. He was trying to get away from the, you know, sweet, wholesome. He still played, you know, his character in this, Harry Damore, is, is a, a sort of well known Clive Barker character. Um, he appears, you know, in, in several of Clive Barker's novels and short stories. Uh, and this itself is based on one of his short stories called The Last Illusion, um, which was, I guess, I don't think it was the first appearance of Harry Damore in his work, but it was the first time that that character was kind of the central focus, um, which I read, and I'm staring at the copy of it right now. It is it's in the back of our office. copy of Cabal, isn't it? Cabal, exactly. Uh, which, you, of course, Cabal. You actually had me read this story. Like, I was so in love with this story when I read it. I just I remember it must have been right after you read it because you came into my room and handed me the book and was like, forget the rest of the book. Just read this <laughs> yeah. story because you'll which really Ka- like this. You'll really like this. Uh, Cabal was the basis for Nightbreed, yeah. which was the film that Clive Barker adapted right before this one and was a disaster. Um, and and The Last Illusion was attached to it. I guess it was originally published in one of the books of blood. I, I want to say like, yeah, like five, the sixth six. one, I think. Yeah, I think the sixth one. And and it was reprinted as part of Cabal, because Cabal is really more of a novella. It's a very long novella, but still, it's not really enough to publish as a standalone book. And so they published Cabal, and then they fleshed it out with some of the, the stories from his books of blood. And uh, I want to say Hellbound Heart, the basis for Hellraiser, is also in that collection. I think it is. Um but so um, I read this and, and I was very into Clive Barker. I read Weave World when I was way too young. Holy shit. I should not have read that book when I was as young as I was. No one but I really under enjoyed it. 21 should probably read Clive Barker books unless you want to sustain some sort of psychological damage. Yeah, like it's, they're just so, they're so unique, right? Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, if you're unfamiliar with Clive Barker, um, you know, Clive Barker's film output is one thing and he's had a tremendous amount of film output for a guy who basically identifies as an author. Um, but Clyde Barker was a, and still is, although his output has diminished over recent years, uh, a horror author who came to prominence in the mid-1980s. Um, really, he hit big, though, 
Um, and it may have been a blurb for Weave World. I, I don't remember what this blurb was for at the off the top of my head, but basically Stephen King blurbed Clive Barker and said that Clive Barker was the future of horror. And much like Ronald Reagan placing his his wrinkled hand of blessing <laughs> upon Tom Clancy, the yeah. moment that Stephen King pointed out Clive Barker and said, this guy is something, he exploded overnight um, and, um, and, and took off from there. And so Clive Barker was kind of the premier late 1980s new horror author. And you can kind of see why. Uh, he took and blended a lot of different genres. He, he's obsessed with magic, obsessed with the occult, obsessed with um, all of these sort of like pseudo Catholic influenced horror slash exorcism themes, which of course come out in things like Hellraiser, um, like heavy, heavy doses dose of, of sadomasochism, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of sadomasochism <laughs> all over the place, which, which, you know, based on, on his, his very open discussions of his own sexuality and, um, and his own relationships, you know, you can tell that that is just a thing he is into and, and it, it bleeds over into his work and, and, and rightly so. Uh, but it, he caught a very specific sort of aesthetic of the 1980s of the counterculture movement that developed, uh, you know, two things like Reaganism, um, and the people, you know, the punk scene, but yet sort of commodified it in these fascinating ways. Um, so he, he releases a string of, of pretty successful books sort of culminating in the mid nineties or early nineties with the great and secret show, uh, which, or that was kind of the second book of a series, but he's, he's kind of got these big universes, these fantasy tinged, um, horror novels. And, and they're all really solid, especially his earlier stuff. Like I said, weave world was the first one I read our dad had a paper book copy of that one. I remember the cover really well. Yeah, it's like a guy's face being sort of pulled into this, you know, tapestry. It's very strange. It almost looks like a Goosebumps book when you look <laughs> back at it now, but it, it was terrifying at the time. Um, and then I picked up Cabal in a used bookshop. Uh, once I had kind of my own cash, I remember going to a used bookstore and and seeing that, and it had a very evocative cover, just all black, and then this uh, sort of slit in the cover with um, these, you know, kind of like two eyes staring yeah. out over like a desert scene. And, and, you know, I knew Clive Barker, I liked his stuff. And so I picked that up and, and ended up thoroughly enjoying it. But the story that stood out was the last illusion yeah. and Harry Demore. And so when I realized that they were making a film based on that, which was part of the original marketing, like they were, were pretty open about it. Um, I got really excited. I was very excited. Um, so let's talk about, before we get into Lord of Illusions, we can talk about Clyde Barker's other film output, uh, which again has been pretty substantial for a guy, um, almost Garth Marenghi levels. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when I think about Lord of Illusions and some of Clive Barker's work, I, I think a lot about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. And he is meant to be an amalgam of all the horror writers who got their shot in film and television in the 1980s. But, uh, I think influenced by Clive Barker more than some others. But so Clive Barker wrote a couple of films um, in the, the mid to late 1980s, right? So like 85, 86. Uh, I've only seen one of them and that is Rawhead Rex. Mm -hmm. um, they were basically produced by the same guy. It almost seemed like a Stuart Gordon kind of situation. Like this guy wanted to make horror films 
he knew Clyde Barker was a horror writer. So he's like, write me some scripts and then I'll, I'll make them. I want to adapt them into film. So Rawhead Rex, uh, have you ever seen Rawhead Rex? I don't think we've ever talked about that one. We've never talked about it, but um, I'm pretty sure I have. But it's the Red Letter Media guys. Time. It's old. It's an old movie. Yeah, it, the Red Letter Media guys did a video on it not too long ago. Mike Stoklasa has. He remembered watching it on cable when he was a kid, and he sought it back out. Um, but it's it's a very it's about a a murder monster. I mean, I mean, it's basically what it is. Who is resurrected and it's it's highly sexual. It, he eats his are. victims, but he also <laughs> has sex with them. Uh, it's it's very strange, but it's also very Catholic. There's a lot of like Catholic priests getting raped and stuff in it. It's it's very raw. Uh, the name Rawhead Rex is appropriate in this particular case. But in essence, he gets these two sort of low budget horror movies made, and he is not at all satisfied with how they are done, um, which will be a theme in Clive Barker's film output. He is not satisfied with how things are typically handled. Um, and then he somehow convinces them, uh, convinces the, the a studio to give him a shot to direct his own film. I don't know how this happened. I don't know why he was given this chance because, you know, typically a writer has to sort of fight tooth and nail to be even heard in Hollywood meeting rooms maybe stephen king's maximum overdrive gave people a little bit of confidence but that movie but why would shouldn't, it <laughs> shouldn't give people confidence i don't think um, he gave anyone else confidence no no um I, I don't think i mean if stephen king could remember the filming of it but apparently uh he was so coked up for the entirety of the process he doesn't even remember that like year and a half yeah. <laughs> where he made maximum overdrive the um the 80s, exactly. Uh, so he gets a shot and he ends up adapting one of his short stories, a very popular one, called The Hellbound Heart into what we would now call Hellraiser. <laughs> and and it does very well. Um, if, if you are unfamiliar with Hellraiser, I find that difficult to believe if you're listening to this. Um, if you've never seen it, you, you would recognize the movie and its characters because they endure even past the movie. Uh, very much so. Yes, he created pretty much all in one step a, a classic horror film and one of the now most iconic sort of horror characters ever in Pinhead, um, the the lead Cenobite. He didn't even have a name in no. the first film. He was just the lead Cenobite, which is a you know murder, death, demon cult. And the Hellraiser, it actually really scared me. When I was younger, and it scares oh, yeah. me now. Like it's just—it's oh, yeah. a scary principle. Anything to do with hell dimensions, and uh, it's just—it's too much. Like I—I I don't know. I have trouble even watching it now because it just creeps me out. It's a creepy movie, and yeah, maybe I just saw it too young. <laughs> um, no, I Hellraiser is. You know, we've we talk a lot and, and extensively even recently about slasher films of the 1980s and and sort of their development. And, you know, they've they've always had this sort of crass component to them, especially once, you know, things like Friday the 13th got involved where they were just sort of blatant money grabs. Right. We can make these cheap. We can put them out for nothing. We can, you know, grab our 20 mil and we can go home. Hellraiser, that's what happened. They made it cheap. They made a good amount of money off of it. But it comes from a different place, 
right? It doesn't come from a place where they're like, how can we make one of these movies? What, how can we make Sleepaway Camp 3? Right? Yeah. Like it doesn't have that. It truly is embedded with ideas that are profoundly disturbing. Mm-hmm. And my thing with Clyde Barker that he's able to do in his films and all of his films do this is he forces you to blend feelings in scenes, right? A lot of, a lot of directors, I'll say not very good directors. They are very, they're very capable of saying, I want you to feel sad in this scene, right? Sadness is our goal. I would say even, even somebody like Christopher Nolan, this is what they do, right? Mm -hmm. This scene is about feeling sad. This scene is about feeling angry. This scene, you know, it, it and he just sort of plods along and each she, each shot or each scene creates its feeling and then he moves on. Clive Parker That's why his movies like, I want you to be excited and I want you to be grossed out. Exactly. And I want you to be laughing and I want you to be a little bit turned on. <laughs> like, I want you to be a little bit turned on, so which is weird. I think which is, I think, where the creep factor comes in. It's because you're watching somebody have their skin torn off with chains, but they're kind of sexy at the same time. Like, like, and hmm. it's just, it's, ugh. it's, it's something that, you know, in a, in a novel or, or for a novelist, it's a similar idea, right? You want a scene to evolve and then to evoke all of these different powerful emotions. And if you can do it simultaneously, you want to. Yeah. And, Barker in in his and I would say he has limited skill as a director like he is not a great director by any stretch um he's much better when things are a tableau when the the scene is just set and then he lets things happen within it uh he's terrible at action yeah he can't really film action at all he has no idea what he's doing which is fine it's it's incredibly difficult to film high quality action and people who make it look easy they're rare but he is capable of constructing thematic moments that are incredibly indelible. There are, well, I'll give an example from Lord of Illusions that we'll talk about in a bit. And this, this scene or set of scenes um, only appears in the unrated director's cut. They cut it from the theatrical version. And, but I, I, I didn't see this in the theater. I would have been too young um, to go by myself. So I would have only seen the DVD when it came out in 98-ish, probably. And there's a, a sequence in the Unrated Director's Cut where you see the members of, of Nyx, the sort of main villain, you see the members of his cult being, I guess, reactivated, right? Being made aware that he is returning. And they've all like, because it's, you know, he's been gone for like 15 years or whatever, and they've all like gone on and they've got families, lives, jobs, kids, and they just murder everyone. And there's just these sort of slow push in shots of like a dinner table covered in blood and like, you know, little kid hands laying across it. And it it's the, those scenes are literally burned into my memory. I can <laughs> recall them with perfect clarity at any time. Any moment I can, there's a little image, there's a little piece of Clive Barker in my brain and every single one of his films, regardless of their overall quality has, I'm going to say at least 10 moments like that. Yeah. Where once where you they see are it, simply, you, you are not going to, unsee mm, it. you're not going to forget it anytime soon. 
Yes. And, and that in and of itself is a skill because most, most directing is about being invisible, right? About the camera, not feeling like it's a part of what's going on, but Barker either in his, in his being a novice and not really getting that, or perhaps by very specific intent, he wants you to feel like you are a part of what's going on. He wants you to feel like you are in that moment. And it's, it's not comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why horror fans are really the people that gravitate to him. And he's never been able to find that mainstream success outside of that is that most people maybe who watch movies, they don't want to feel that way. They just want to be that passive peep show pervert that's observing all these people without being noticed. Right. Whereas Clive Barker's like, oh, you see this. You see what's going on here, don't you? Well, a lot of people want to go to a movie and then leave a movie and leave the movie Mm -hmm. behind. Yeah. And and forget about it. Move on. Right. Remember that it was good. Like, no, not with his stuff. You see Hellraiser, you're going to remember Frank in the attic. You're going to remember. You're never going to forget. (laughs) Good luck. Even though he didn't, even though he didn't make Hellraiser 2, he wrote it though, didn't he? Uh, he he was heavily involved in it, and then I, he produced. He he is credited as the story. I don't know if he got the screenplay, but Hellraiser two also has a yeah. lot of those moments. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's, and most people consider that last that like the last good Hellraiser. There are people who well, they made for three, ten of them. but <laughs> so you know there has and they're to making be a another one in quality. And they're making another one um, because, oh, that's right, because uh, they've recast Pinhead and it's a, a female, it's an actress this time, it's a female mm. actor. And people are losing their goddamn minds. Oh, I don't, How dare you? I don't have a problem Pinhead. with gender swapping. I just really love Doug cares, Bradley. Yeah. And yeah, I don't but, know I mean, if you replace that. Doug Bradley's like 80. Yeah, you know? I think like, he's not going to be Pinhead I, anymore. <laughs> I don't think he's going to show up for Pinhead and sit in the makeup <laughs> chair for 10 hours anymore, nor should he have to. Um, But yeah, it's his movies are, are indelible in that way. Whether that's good or not really depends on your personal taste. But so he makes Hellraiser. It's, it's not a smash. Like they made it for a million. It made 15 and then had very good home video numbers, obviously. So it, it was enough that he launched a new horror franchise. It's easily good enough for that. And as you said, it's made they've made ten movies of <laughs> highly varying quality. <laughs> I have a soft spot for four. I like I remember four. that one. Um four is the one that delves into Le Marchand, the the creator of right. of uh, the box, of the, the puzzle box where the Cenobites can connect to our universe, which is another thing, man. I freaking love the lament configuration and the yeah. whole idea behind it. It's, like, it's, it's terrifying. Such a cool like, idea. That, oh my that God. was the kind of stuff in Hellraiser that really stuck with me as being extra scary. Like this is, yes. this is creepy. Well, I mean, it's, you know, we talked about event horizon on this podcast and mm-hmm. it's the same kind of terror that follows me and like why I'm still kind of obsessed with that movie too. It's yeah. It, it's such such a great idea and it it has so many cool things that run through it and can be connected to it. Mm-hmm. Um 
and it's another one of those, like, it's a super simple idea, right? I'm solving a puzzle box, but unlocking this puzzle box unlocks this thing that I can't control. Such a fantastic concept. Um, And so the fourth one delves into that. It, there's a lead, there's a tee up for the fourth one at the end of three, just a very minimal, like, cause the, at the end of three, the box falls into like a concrete foundation and then you flash forward and you see that the, the building they built out of the foundation, like basically has the box all over it. Right. It's like the, the box is the building kind of thing. And then the fourth one runs with that idea and goes back and delves into the the toy maker the you know the guy mm-hmm. who built the box and he built it these very specific specifications and the guy who had him do that it's actually um adam scott from parks and recreation <laughs> it was his first movie was hellraiser 4 um he has I love a, a him. pretty small part in it yeah but he's good uh but it's also the one that was it was hell hellraiser in space that was the other piece of it and so who doesn't love story. that I kind of like it a lot and it kind of ends really nicely. It's kind of cool. But anyway, I I won't go into it, but yes. So then they just go downhill from there. Five was directed by Scott Derrickson. Mm -hmm. um, Now of, of modern horror film fame made Dr. Strange. Apparently his new book, the black, his new movie, the black phone based on a, uh, a, uh, it's just so weird to think of how people get their start. It's really good. You know, yeah. they're early. Yeah, I mean, work. seriously, like he made Hellraiser five, which is not a good Hellraiser, <laughs> but he made it. So whatever. Uh, and then, you know, there's Hell World, the one where it's World of Warcraft, but Hellraiser. Oh, my God. <laughs> there's uh, then there's the the sequence of reboots where they just tried to start it over a couple of times. and That didn't really go anywhere. And there's some there's a couple of interesting ones in that sequence. But yeah, they're most of them now are being made very cheaply and quickly just so that they can hold on to the rights because they're set to revert to Clive Barker if they don't keep making Hellraiser movies. Um, anyway, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but that one is coming at some point in the future. Uh, Barker is listed only as a producer. So I, I don't know how involved he's going to be. I imagine that's not going to be good, but in, in any case, whatever. So he's had this weird success as an author in film. Right, which you would not necessarily expect. And he's also he makes artist. Hellraiser. And he's also he is, like, he's a he visual just does everything. <laughs> he's he's kind of all over the place. It's remarkable his output. So he makes Hellraiser. That does pretty well. He gets involved in the making of Hellraiser two. That does not go well. Gets into fights with the studio, which is going to be a recurring theme. And then he makes uh, leaves that production and then gets money to make Nightbreed, uh, which is an adaptation of Cabal which is a story about a town called Meridian that is populated entirely by monsters. A guy stumbles into it, finds out maybe he's a monster and, and it kind of goes from there. The original novella is great. It's a, it's a really good read. It's a a little slow, but it does some cool stuff. And, and so he makes a film of that super low budget or relatively low budget. And, and again, not very good, extremely troubled production. There are like seven cuts of this movie out there. Uh, one was a fan cut that was put together with VHS tape copies of original work prints that Barker had produced for the studio. And they tried to like reassemble it. And that has basically been a theme of Barker's work since Hellraiser. Hellraiser, it was such a minimal budget. He was basically left alone. Just just do what you want. Minimal interference. Make it scary. <laughs> Yeah, make scary movie for cheap, right? And he did it. Nightbreed much heavily involved, much more heavily involved. 
and it, it just kind of gets it just kind of gets destroyed. Um, the coolest thing about Nightbreed, if you're a horror fan, is that it stars David Cronenberg. Like yeah. He's actually in it. He plays <laughs> he plays the main villain with his um, creepy voice, and he's so creepy. Um, did you know he's in Star Trek Discovery? I did. I read that David somewhere. Cronen- he's season three of Star Trek Discovery. David Cronenberg he's, is in it. Uh, it's so and he just shows up. It's like just yeah. We were sitting there and there there like stuff was happening and there was like there. I turned and I looked at my partner. And I was like, I think that's that's David Cronenberg. And they even make like a weird, like, why are you wearing those glasses? Because it's Star Trek. It's in the future. It's like, why are you wearing glasses? And he's like, I think they make me look good. And I was like, <laughs> oh my god, David Cronenberg. The people well, who show up on Star Trek shows, though, it's it's yeah. weird. All of the guest stars that have been in that series. And people just love Star Trek, man. I love Star Trek. Um, but so anyway. Uh, David Cronenberg's in it, and and you could tell that the studio was trying to recreate a bit of the Hellraiser success. So rather than focusing on the hero and the story of the monsters, they kind of got obsessed with trying to create another slasher villain. I think the movie should have had a little more fun. I know we're not talking about Nightbreed, but... We can't. I mean, it's whatever. This is kind of like the Clive Barker rundown. Well, the last time I... I I mean, when I watched it, I... uh... I just kept thinking like, wow, this is like a really adult version of Little Monsters. <laughs> yeah, that's really all it is. Totally. I mean, it, it, I kind of feel like Little Monsters should have gotten some Nightbreed in it and Nightbreed should have gotten a little gotten bit of Little, little monsters, monsters in it. <laughs> so that's going to be our, our new thing. This movie needed a Little Monsters. It, it did. Um, little Howie Mandel goes yeah, along. <laughs> yeah, Nightbreed is, is a really tonally challenging film, much like this one is really. Less so of a problem with Lord of Illusions, but it's it's just it's it's not a great movie. It has certainly found its niche. Um, you know, it's it's gotten its uh, you know Scream Factory limited edition Blu-ray release for all the horror fans. You know, like it's it's got its place at this point, but it is a problematic film by any standards. So Nightbreed is bad and it does not do well, but Barker as you know, he seems to be able to do, um, continues on, and he then makes Candyman, which he does not direct, Nope. but he, he is produced. heavily involved in the production of, Yeah. and it's based on another of his short stories called The Forbidden, and Candyman does good. It's a great does movie. real good. <laughs> and that's because Candyman is great. It's, it's like, still Candyman, scary. <laughs> again, it is a movie when, when they reveal the bees and where they live in that movie burned into the brain yep. forever never going away the hook into the bloody stump Mm-mm. never going away Mm-mm. i'm going to remember that till i die and and that's okay right uh, so again not directed by but it was successful enough and popular enough that people are like okay this Clyde Barker guy still got he's got something going on and so Candyman sort of again launches its own little horror franchise, at least for a bit. Uh, I guess we won't really talk about the new Candyman because again, Barker didn't have Why a ton would we to want do with to? that. <laughs> I, I've I've seen it. It's I think I need to rewatch it and invest a little bit more of my attention in it. I, I not that I was half watching it, but I was not super involved in it, and I wasn't really giving it a chance because I love the original so much. So I was watching it, being like, oh, that's not. Mm. I don't know. Mm, I, okay. You know, like there were things where I was like, yes, that's good. And then 
other things where it's like, why are they doing this? They're just complicating something that could be very simple. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Candyman comes out and he gets another film. And so he picks another of his short stories from the Books of Blood, Last Illusion, a story that I love. And he adapts it into The Lord of Illusions, which is our, our film that we're going to talk about today. Now, I, I did want to segue before we, we jump totally into a discussion of Lord of Illusions and what it's about. I, I did want to mention that another place where Clyde Barker has found unexpected success is in video games. Um, Made one of the best first-person shooters of all time. I guess we need, I mean, who is Clyde Barker's agent? I guess that's what we need to ask. It's like, who is making the phone calls to be like, hey, you guys need a writer that's scary? Clive can do that. I mean, was that his tagline? Clive can do that. <laughs> do you, I mean, hey, we like need the guy to. really drunk and calls him up in the middle of the night. He's like, you'll never guess what showed up on my desk. Yeah. And and just hear me out. <laughs> we've, got this, we've got this this mall opening in Reseda, California. I said Clive can do that. <laughs> it's, just, it's it's such a weird thing to see him attached to all this stuff. But so um, in the early two thousands, the heyday of the post Half Life first person shooter, when everybody was trying to do these long story driven, you know, cutscene driven, you know, first person shooter experiences on PC. EA had a project, right? The, the, from what we understand about the development and, and video game development in the early 2000s was not chronicled in the way that it is now. You know, nobody had YouTube channels with Vidocs and, you know, community outreach podcasts. It was like you know, basically what you do in a garage or a basement <laughs> right. saying, I'm going like, video game. We make video game here. Um, but, they they had a project that was was in trouble basically they 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 had a ton of it built a ton of assets made but the the story of the game was not working at least up to the studio standards we don't really know what the story was beforehand i think you can kind of piece it together um but in essence clive barker was brought in to do a complete redo on the story using the assets that they already had for the most part so that means he was basically shown levels, character designs, and then had to sort of weave a story together out of it. And the result of that was called Clive Barker's, because you have to put Clive Barker yeah. in front of it, Clive Barker's Undying. And it's so good. And my God. It's so good. It's, it's so scary. so good. It's still um, scary. The mechanics of the game are a little challenging by modern standards, just controls wise. It's a little bit of a clunky game. But it's the first game that introduced it, that introduced at least that I can remember two hand weapon wielding. Because you had your like physical weapon in one hand, so like a gun, and then you had a magic talisman that allowed you to do magic in your other hand, and you controlled them independently. And and the game that didn't really get work until Bioshock, right. which was like seven years later. But still, well, in the game, you know, we were talking about Clive Barker moments. Undying is full of those, like things that I will just so never many. forget. So many. Like um, finding Aaron Covenant in the basement. <laughs> I'm yeah, never going to forget that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's such an interesting game. Uh, it's again, all about a guy who studies the occult 
Um, he's this Irishman who has been, he was come home to Jeremiah Covenant's Island. The, the family covenant like on their island. It's a period piece. The, it's set, you know, just after World in, like, War One. Post-World War One. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's just so uh, good. What's his name? Patrick? Patrick Galloway. Pat- Galloway. I'll never forget that's it right, because yeah. he was so sexy. That's right. He was, he was a sexy character. And, and that's something that I do have to like, point they out. They worked on that hair a lot. Like, that is, that's a Clive Barker thing. I mean, you know, it, it helps. Like, he's, a, he's a gay, he's a gay man. He is a gay he man. He mm-hmm. always like objectifies men in whatever he writes, whatever he <laughs> directs, whatever thing. games is, he's involved in. It's just the, the men are beautiful and you will see that's their That's the other beauty. piece of it that I think, that why, why I'm going to guess that there are a large number of people that find his movies somewhat difficult is that if there is a gender being objectified in one of Clive Barker's movies, it's not the women. And if it is women, uh, there will also be just as much for the men. Like it's it, just as much for the men. It's yeah. fantastic. I love it. It's really cool. And and so he um he makes this video game. It's it's great. Like it's truly a wonderful video game. Um you can get it on GOG, uh good old games, or it's, they don't call themselves good old games anymore. It's just GOG now. Um but you can get it on there for like ten bucks or less most of the time, and it runs flawlessly on modern computers. It's really nice. Um, but it's a great story. It's all about this like screwed up family that has all this history with this island and this these sort of standing stones that are kind of like stonehenge like on an island close to their own that causes all this weird stuff to happen there's magic there's a cult there's demons it's it's everything that you would want out of a clive barker experience in this really nice first bird shooter package um, even if you don't want to play it, there are a number of really good playthroughs of the game on YouTube that you could go watch and just sort of absorb. And, and it's, it's great. So, so Barker is this like strange multimedia maven who is just capable of blending all of these different influences and then outputting stuff in tons and tons and tons of different ways. He's been a playwright. Um, he's, he's a poet. He's a poet. He's an essayist. He, Hooked up with Todd McFarlane and made a bunch of toys. <laughs> no, those are like, awesome. <laughs> like, yeah, the all the infernal toys or whatever they were called are just insane and great. I, I don't know. So enough. Cli- I, we we love Clive Barker mm-hmm. and rightly so. I, I guess that's really what it comes down to. He did make another game called Clive Barker's Jericho, which I did play all the way through. Um, I did not hundred percent, even though I, I was going to. I got very close on Xbox 360, I think. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, he's, he's been involved in, in different stuff pretty much all over the place for the last 30 years. And in some ways I'm going to go ahead and say that I think Lord of Illusions is my favorite thing (laughs) he's done. Not because it's great. It's not, but because it absolutely clicks every button that I have simultaneously. If there is an alley that is called Tim Alley, it is at the far end of that alley, and I'm going to walk all the way down it mm-hmm. every time. It's this movie has detective. It's got demons. It's got magic. Exorcism. <laughs> it's got magic, both real magic and illusion like stage David Copperfield shit. I cannot tell you how many of those boxes are my yeah. boxes. Like just tick them. 
Like, yep, that's it. I love that. I love that. I think that's awesome. Um, it's kind of like, this is a movie we are going to talk about at some point in the future, but uh, Neil Blomkamp's new movie, Demonic, which is mm-hmm. terrible by all accounts. There is, I got super excited because they introduced in that movie, like, Catholic special forces. <gasps> Basically, like, like a team of priest exorcists and tactical gear who were going to, like, go in and, like, do something <laughs> but the moment that i mean like they had the suit up scene where they're putting on all their tack gear and they're like got blessing crosses and putting <laughs> holy water and stuff i was like oh my like i was in i was there and then it just gets dropped completely like it just disappears from the film and i was like no 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 i thought that was gonna be what we were doing and then it doesn't and i was so sad because that too it's my real house. Like I'm there for that stuff, man. Are you gonna tell me that every that all these priests are like like tier one operator priests? Is that what we are getting here? Um and it's it it made me so sad that I like started architecting my own story because I'm like, I have to write this because I'm it's the only way I'm ever gonna be satisfied is if I write the tier one priest operator story. <laughs> but anyway, um anyway. So Clyde Barker's Lord of Illusions is all of those things, and I love it. So our main character is Harry Damore. Harry the lover, right? Harry Love, if you want to call him that. Um, and he is a detective. Now, in, in the original short story, he is a detective who specializes in occult weirdness, right? And we uh, kind sort of get a, a hint that he does in the movie too, but they don't really get into it's, it. Right. It seems almost more like he's, he keeps getting involved in it, even though he doesn't want to, right. It's very much more a, like I keep getting dragged into these situations rather than move, sort of moving into them with intent uh, as it does sound in the, the short story. And, and again, Harry Demore is a character that has come through several of Clive Barker's works. He shows up again and, um, Everville, I guess he's got a pretty big part in that. He's got a guest appearance in the great and secret show. So he's one of those sort of like, you know, characters that shows up over and over again. But yeah, the film kind of takes a different angle, but he's a detective, you know, of the old school, you know, private eye, private Dick style. Um, I mean, the first time we see him, he's in like an A shirt with his he's gun. Got suspenders. <laughs> He's got the suspenders. He's still wearing his, you know, the amount of time that Scott Bakula spends walking around downtown Los Angeles just with an open carry firearm on his (laughs) shoulder is remarkable. Um, Like he's just walking down city streets with like his his holster on no jacket over it. Just yep, got a gun right here, Uh, which I guess the 90s in L.A. was a very different time. But it was. But so he's a detective and he has just achieved a certain amount of notoriety in, I guess it's supposed to be New York. I think that's the indication at least um, for being involved in an exorcism gone wrong. Right. Um, Or at least what, you know, was painted as an exorcism. And we only really get flashes of it. Uh, Supposedly that was one thing that was cut pretty extensively from the film. Barker did more to have that get referenced throughout the rest of the movie because, um, you know, Demore is is haunted by that experience throughout the film, and he, he 
there are moments where you can tell he's kind of thinking about it or referencing it. So he's our, our main character for lack of a better term. Uh, although the film really does. And the story also focuses on uh, Swan. Right. Uh, and in this case, Swan is a illusionist, right? He is a magician in the David Copperfield model, you know, the making shit disappear and you know, whatever. Levitating. Uh, yes, levitating, which they, they do some cool stuff with. Um, I guess it was Philip Swan. In the short story, I don't think his first name's ever given. It's just referred to as Swan because, you know, mind freak or whatever. <laughs> like that's what magicians do, right? It's just the name. Um, but so the original short story is about Damore being summoned because they believe that, uh, Swan who has recently died, that his body will be vandalized, that someone's something bad is going to happen. So they just literally want someone to sit with his corpse for this one night. And, you know, Carrie gets the job. And of course things go very strangely. So this movie takes that core concept of the illusionist who has died under mysterious circumstances and maybe more than an illusionist and, and begins expanding and layering on it. So this film actually is about Swan um, and, and sort of his past, a villain character named Nix played by uh, Daniel Von Bargen or Bargen. I don't know how his last name was um, who at this time would have been most famous for some small supporting roles in films, and he had had a sort of long-running appearance on Seinfeld. Um, he did like four or five episodes of Seinfeld. Uh, I forget. He was somebody's boss for a period of time yeah. uh, on that. I mean, he had been in TV. He was Mr. Mr. Kruger, I think, is who he was. And, I mean, understand, he was a working actor. Um, he had done a ton of stuff. Most people probably know him from... Um, Oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. Where he plays the devil, basically, the, the sheriff who is hunting them down. That's probably his most significant role. Um, but Lord of Illusions would have come, you know, sort of around the time that he was doing a lot of work. He was in Robocop 3. <laughs> I don't want to forget about that. He was one of the, the troop I've of been guys to in Robocop about it for 3. Years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, he was in Crimson Tide. You know, he, he'd been around. But he was definitely a bit player part actor. And this is a pretty big role for him at this time. He has an amazing um, voice. It, it is an incredible voice. And it plays very well with this character. Um, so he's a kind of cult leader um, who may be magical or demon possessed in some way. There's, there's you know, a lot of ambiguity there about what exactly he is. Um, and then uh, we have probably the first time... Well, everybody would have known Famke Jansen from GoldenEye at this point. She would have played, um, gosh, what was her name in that? Zhenya Onatop, right? Because it, it was yeah. still when they were doing like goofy, vaguely sexual girl names in, yeah. in uh, James Bond movies. I know her as a person I shot in the face when I played Goldeneye on the Nintendo 64. <laughs> yes, yes, you attempted to kill her very, very quickly before she got on a top of you. Um, did you see what they did there? This <laughs> right. So, so clever. Just She's on a top of you, James. <laughs> yeah. It does. Um, but so those these films, Goldeneye and, and this, came out in the same year. So this was kind of like where she began. This I is a heck of a filmed... contrast with Goldeneye. 
Yeah, I, I think career. she filmed this before Goldeneye, actually. Um, but in any case, she. I, I really love Famke Johnson. Uh, yeah. I think she is a great actress. I think she's been undervalued in genre cinema for a long time. She was. I mean, she, she was a great Jean Grey mm -hmm. until they massacred that character because they're. It idiots. wasn't her fault. <laughs> But that was not her fault, and she did the best with what she had, and and I think, you know, as a result, that character has become a kind of indelible piece of pop culture, um, mostly because of the weight that she gave to a character that was basically abandoned and treated very badly in all of the X-Men films, um, which doesn't make a ton of sense, given how important Jean Grey is to the development of the X-Men, but whatever, side note. Um, so she is in this playing Dorothea, Swan's wife. Um, we have Swan's assistant, Valentin, um, who is is played by um, an actor that I haven't really seen in much. Uh, he actually did a lot of stuff on Star Trek. Uh, he was on Deep Space Nine a couple of times. You know, again, working actor, a lot of television. Uh, he was in uh, Lucifer recently. Uh, which I know is a show a lot of people like. I've never gotten that into it, but um, in any case, uh, he plays Swan's assistant, who has a sort of large role. Um, Nix has a few followers, uh, namely Butterfield, who in the original short story was a demon, um, and I want to say was was Swan's assistant character in that. And so again, Barker is kind of readapting the story completely. Um, so there's a solid cast. There's certainly no like standout breakout stars. Bakula would have been the biggest star in this. Um, Swan is, of course, played by Kevin J. O'Connor. Who is great. Um, who I think, again, hugely undervalued actor. Um, but nobody really knew who Kevin J. O'Connor was until The Mummy. Yeah. Unless a you're a big so... fan of like, Peggy Sue Got Married, which I am. Well, sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but he he plays Swan here, and I think he does a good job with a character who is is meant to be kind of tortured, uh, meant to be you know sort of psychologically and spiritually torn apart by his experiences, and I think he does a good job bringing that to screen. But the basic story is that Harry um, Demore is sent to Los Angeles on a, a fairly routine job as a way to get out of the city, since this other job with the exorcism and the kid went bad. He is doing some insurance fraud investigation or something and then stumbles into just because of a, a you know a connection between the case he's working and then this other thing that's going on into this world of Philip Swan and um, you know this magical force that he is fighting against. And and again, it's it's a really it's a really solid bit of detective storytelling. You can tell that Barker has an understanding of, of how detective stories work and how the sort of like strange coincidences lead to certain things and get pulled, you know, your, your lead character, your detective is going to get pulled into that world usually yeah. against their will. And, you know, it's very Chinatown in that way, I guess, you know? And so the story then develops into Demore trying desperately not only to understand what's going on, you know, in this broad sense, but to understand magic and illusion and how those things work. And then, of course, this next level of, well, what if the magic and the illusion that you thought was fake was actually real? 
um, that that's how it worked. And so just a cool concept, a fantastic basis for a film. And if the film is flawed, it's because it doesn't live up to the potential of that premise as well as it could, really. Um, but that's a big premise to live up to, right? If you set out to tell a story that's crossing genres in that particular way, with that much, oh, where could we go with this? That's going to be a tall ask for anybody. Yeah. And then when you couple that with a director who, quite frankly, is not that great. Like he's, a, I, I think, again, Klein Barker is a very middle of the road director in terms of his actual technical proficiency. Things are going to fall down. But there are so many cool ideas in this story, man. Like just so many cool ideas that if you love horror cinema and you like detective cinema as well, you know, if you will sit down and watch the Maltese Falcon unironically just because you think it's good, you know, there's a little bit going on here, too. So, so what are your initial you know, thoughts on Lord of Illusions before we get into spoilers and sort of breaking down the movie itself? It's one of those that you can see how it could have been a great movie. As it is, I think it's a fun movie and I like it a lot. Um, but like you said, you know, it's in the hands of somebody who's a little less experienced, who definitely knows what they want to see but maybe doesn't know how to execute what they want to see. Um, and it kind of leaves me thinking like, ah, this would have been so great with just a bit more money or maybe a different director or just more support or something. But as it is, this is a great movie. I really it. Like really it really is. <laughs> I mean, if you can lower, <laughs> this is terrible to say, if you can lower your standards a little bit, yeah. what a movie needs to be and do man this is a good movie like it's a really good movie but this is the type of movie right like we talk about remakes and reboots and sequels and stuff all the time why hasn't anyone tried this now this is a movie that needs to be remade yeah like this is the perfect candidate because the ideas are good the basic script story all of that is pretty good it just needs to be sort of brought forward um this movie has some very early cg in it mm -hmm. like lawnmower man <laughs> cg in this movie and the again the concept very cool the execution could have been fine just not there right it, it's one of those like you kind of understand why George Lucas waited 17 years to do the next star Wars because he kept looking at the technology and being like, not quite there. Yeah. Just, just not quite there. And, and this is a movie where it demands better visual effects than it has. And so it's, it's again, it's hard to say that it's great, right? Difficult to say that, but it is something cool, surprisingly. So, detective story set in Los Angeles, heavily noir influenced, really going for that 1940s detective vibe with all of these mystical, magical elements as Harry Damore attempts to unravel who is Swan? Why can he do the things that he does? Who is this mysterious figure they eventually reveal to be called the Puritan? who is 
manipulating things behind the scenes. What's going on? It's it's a good detective story. There's some nice reveals, solid acting, good performances from Scott Bakula and Famke Johnson, especially. Um, a, a solid film to try and get your hands on. Problem. Very difficult to get your hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, the Blu-ray for this, and and I am a bit of a Blu-ray collector or just physical media collector. It's it's folly. It's stupid to keep physical media around but when you eventually have a very difficult time finding a movie like this um it makes you glad that you have like a thing that you can put in a disc player and play because um the blu-ray for this came out in like 2014 2015 scream factory special edition which they were doing a bunch of at the time i have a few of them but i didn't get this one because i'm dumb uh and now it's like 150 bucks Oops. to get this on blu-ray uh unless you buy like an overseas edition and you have a player that can play it from like france you know so that sucks um but it is streaming with minimal ad support currently as of mid-february 2022 on Tubi. <laughs> god bless Tubi. <laughs> yet, yet again Tubi comes to the rescue um i will say the version on Tubi is not the unrated director's cut um, which is the version that I've seen the most of. Uh, there are there are two cuts. Again, the studio meddled pretty significantly with this on the back end to the point that I do not even think that Clive Barker did the final cut. He still got final director's credit because that's they have to. But I, as far as I know, he had walked away from the project before the studio released or finished the theatrical cut. So there is an unrated director's cut of this that reinstates a few of those scenes, um, again, some of them very disturbing, but uh, the one on Tubi is just the, the theatrical, from what I can tell, and uh, it's it's still worth watching. The theatrical, I think, is probably a tighter film. You do lose a bit with it, but it, it does tell a, a much more sort of condensed story, um, but in any case, you know, you, you can potentially watch it on Tubi for free with some ads. Um, you know, there there are other methods to obtain it, of course, if you want to go that direction. But um, if you do want a physical media copy of this in a high definition format, it's it's going to cost you. Um, I'm still considering <laughs> <laughs> because I'm stupid. But in any case, um, I guess if you're ready, we'll go ahead and uh, discuss the film itself, the film proper, get into spoilers. You're welcome to pause here if you would like to go find the film and just watch it yourself before we break it down we certainly recommend that you do that i think it's it's well worth your time um if you have any familiarity with clive barker and you just missed this one which i've also had a few people say like they oh i love hellraiser and you know some of them have even said oh i've seen nightbreed and i'm like oh have you seen lord of illusions and they're like what's that (laughs) just one of those movies that just slipped right through the cracks um then uh definitely go do that and you can come back and uh revisit us with the breakdown um all right so let's let's get into spoilers um this movie opens in the past um and i i really like this opening right there are a lot of compromised scenes in this film film scenes that you can tell just like didn't work but so much of this works. 
at least for me, right? Because you, it kind of opens on, um, a compound, right? So this is a film. One of the things that the Barker introduced into this was a cult, mm-hmm. uh, and this character Nix. And uh, that's, this is not a part of the original short story. That's um, my alley. I love things yeah. about creepy cults. That just makes me happy. <laughs> it's again, it's such good fertile territory for a story like this. Um, we do get a bit of a text crawl. It's not really a text crawl. It's more just like there are two kinds of magic in the world. There's the illusionist. And then there's, you know, like the actual like real magic, but we open with these cars speeding through the desert, all interspersed with these shots of a kind of broken down compound. Like there's just caged dead animals and, just everything's blowing in the wind, chicken feet sticking out of the dirt. Like it's, it's everything that you would think of in terms of like terrifying, creepy cult place. Right. Yeah. Um, even, even like Quentin Tarantino in once upon a time in Hollywood is sort of playing upon this like cult mansion in the desert out where nobody is, you know, that kind of thing. And so we get these interspersed shots of these cars just flying through the desert at top speed. And these obvious, you know, sort of like broken down cult places. And I don't know, man, the the interspersing of these, the the sort of eeriness of the score, which the score in this film, I will say, is actually pretty solid. Um, a lot of mid-90s scores are just kind of eminently forgettable, you know, if, if they weren't written by John Williams. Yeah. Um, but this one is actually very good. It's, it's understated. It's not overpowering, but it's very creepy. Uh, Simon Burwell, I think, is the one who did the, the score for this who, you know, pretty, pretty solid career. I mean, a lot of smaller stuff, not really a ton of things. I I will say the other notable score that he did this year, it actually happened in 1995 as well, was was Hackers. (laughs) (laughs) That immortal film, Hackers. Um, Hack the planet. Uh, you know, not a ton of not a ton of output, especially not very much recently. But, you know, he's he's got a couple of things under his belt that are fairly memorable, especially from the mid 90s. And this one, again, it's not a fantastic score by any stretch, but it it's creepy. It's atmospheric and it's it's subtle. And and I think it works for the most part and definitely works for this. This interspersing of sharp cars speeding, you know, weird cult. Place. I. I get tense. Like, I, I'm just like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Like, because you know something's wrong, right? They don't have to say anything's wrong, but something's wrong. And uh, and it works. And so we get introduced to our first character, uh, who is Butterfield. Um, and again, this is, this is Clive Barker's male gaze in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is wearing shorty shorts of the shortest variety. Uh, I don't think they could be shorter and be called shorts at some point they would just be like a speedo or something i don't know but he's in these short shorts he's just kind of meandering on this front porch uh whittling a skull of some kind of course it's a skull (laughs) of course it's a skull why wouldn't it be a skull um i guess the other thing like there there seems to be a lot of art around uh like like all the wind chimes inserted into like wind chimes and stuff (laughs) i I have a feeling that Clive Barker designed all that stuff himself. It seems like the kind of thing that he would design because he's also a sculptor. But it's just, again, very creepy opening, super creepy opening, like a, an opening that's so good that I don't really know if the film ever really pays off its promise. 
right? Like, just excellent. Um, so then we're very rapidly introduced to Nix uh, with Daniel von Bargen. And, and we're, it's demonstrated very quickly that he is a real magician because he's, like, holding a flame in his hand. Yeah. Like, he is manipulating a flame. So this is, you know, our opening tells us there's two kinds of magic in the world. We know what kind of magic this is. And he's sermonizing to his his followers who are a bunch of seemingly normal looking folk but they are they're very culty yeah right on a scale of one to cult they are very cult they might be cult um, and a half <laughs> it's a lot of the the cult behavior in this is is one of the things that creeps me the hell out because it's just a lot of like glassy-eyed people staring and muttering sort of and just yeah muttering and just being really sexual yeah all the time um and it's it's meant to be i mean that's obviously what barker is going for here but again it's part of that thing that he's capable of doing that you're kind of fascinated you're a little bit turned on you kind of don't know you're why also afraid. it's kind of a creepy feeling you're very scared every it's it's all of that all kind of intertwined together and it's surprisingly effective but then finally we see the cars come to a stop and and we get the reveal of swan and his compatriots who it's just there's just a couple of them they have a shotgun nick and a gun and not much else and and their goal obviously is to stop whatever is about to happen um the the way that barker sort of sets all this up is is very is very short story-ish, right? He's the exposition is sort of letting itself roll. Like he's not really trying to force things in. The conversations feel feel pretty natural, which I think is good. You know, we don't have a character. We like we we have a character who, you know, they're talking about basically Nix has kidnapped a girl. And they they believe that the plan is to sacrifice her for whatever it is that they're attempting to accomplish, which is never really explained. Um, and, and I'm kind of glad you know, it's it, not explained. Yeah, it doesn't need to be. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the things I like we about this imagine. is that the <laughs> the nature of the magic and what is attempting to be accomplished here is very vague. Um, the best line in the movie, honestly, and and Barker I think has even said that he this came late in the pro. There was actually I think I read an article with him where he said in essence there was there was a sort of cult mass murder or mass suicide while they were in pre-production on the film. I don't remember who it was. It was like a lunar cult or something. And, and he became obsessed with the, with, with what that was and actually built those elements into this film sort of very late in the process because he was like, what if, what would that be and how could that work? And so the, the nature of what this cult is attempting to do is left vague, but later in the film, Nix uh, says, I was, a, I'm a, I was a man who wanted, wanted to be a god, be a god and, changed his mind. and changed his mind. And that's it. Like, nothing else is, is explained about what Nix's goals are, or what his purposes are. The only other thing that runs beneath the surface that I imagine in, in initial drafts Barker's still able to work in is that it appears that Nix and Swan had a homosexual relationship of some kind. Yeah. Um, or, which I think well, is. It kind of feels more like uh, Nix 
wanted to have a relationship with Swan, and Swan was like, look, man, I'm not into you. Uh, um, right. There was some kind of conflict. Yeah. There. Or at least a, like and a master and apprentice kind of thing, but with right. maybe a daddy kink to it, which is kind of perfect for a cult. Right. I mean, and it, it is. It's It's basically that sort of, you know, Jim Jones, you know, you must you must obey, you must give me the thing that I want kind of thing. Which, you know, the thing I love about horror, like what Clive Barker does, is that if you do know anything about cult behavior, like you watch a movie like this and you're like, oh, that's so disturbing. It's like, dude, it's not even close. Yeah, Like the, this is the just... people who have really done this shit for real, movies can't even touch how depraved that stuff is. Um, like if you watch the the like any documentaries on Jim Jones and that cult, even before he moved them overseas, like what he did to people while he was just a pastor of a church in in California, just obliteratingly terrifying. Disgusting. Yeah, I mean, like, so that's uh, one of the reasons why I like horror is that in many ways horror films are more controlled than reality, um, and they're they're much easier for me to take than actual human beings doing terrible things to each other. But in any case, Swan and Nix have had this, uh, there's an unstated relationship that existed before this moment in time, even though we're looking at this in the past. They, Swan was with Nix in some form or fashion as a member of the cult, as a paramour, we don't really know. And then they've broken with each other now. And now Swan wants to stop Nix from what he is trying to do again for reasons unexplained. So, Von Bargen here as Nix, I think, is really good at playing this sort of like, I'm not going to say he's likable. He's not likable, but he's relatable. He's normal, right? He's not a towering presence. He's not like six foot four. He's not Dolph Lundgren or something. He's just this sort of unassuming, kind of pudgy, balding dude. But yet you can tell in the way he carries himself, there is something powerful inside of him, right? The, the outer shell doesn't matter. And he, he immediately sort of conveys this intimidation. I mean, the dude's belly is hanging out of his shirt. Yeah. Right. Like it's, and, and I have to believe that all of this is intentional, right? Like it's not that he's, it's not that Barker wants you to laugh at this guy, but at the same time, there is this weird interplay between how intimidating do I want this guy to be? Versus how sort of humdrum every day, this is just a dude. Do I want this guy to be? Well, and it it kind of communicates that it's presence. It's not it's not how he looks. It's not the style. It's not there's nothing showy about this cult. I mean, they're in a crack house in the desert, and everyone is filthy, and they all look <laughs> like they don't filthy. know where they are. And floors. it is just purely what he can do and what's inside of him that is making all of this possible. And so um, the young girl has been kidnapped. Um, there is a baboon. Yeah, there. they have a um, baboon on a on a leash, on a chain. Which I have to feel. I have to believe that um, there was more about this baboon. At some point. <laughs> like, why like, is I, the baboon here? <laughs> like, I, I have to. I have to believe that the baboon had some other 
component to play in the early part of the script. Now, we did see as it was panning through the facility, panning through the, the crack house, that there are a lot of dead animals. Yeah. Right? Animals and also they had snakes. Open and they have a lot of snakes. snakes. So maybe it's related to that. I don't know. Um, but, you know, it, it. there's a clear sense of threat. There's a clear purpose to the scene, which is one of the things I like about Barker, is that the purposes of his scenes are always very clear. And maybe that's because he needs the emotions to be more complex. So the purpose of the scene, like what's happening and why it's happening is all very, very clear. But then the emotion is what is ambiguous and, and what you're forced to sort of reconcile in the moment. So the baboon is there. Very exciting. You don't often get to see baboons on screen uh, outside of like the odd Kevin James zookeeper movie <laughs> or something. And the the girl is in danger, so Swan and his his friends are there. Then the the weirdness just gets amped up to eleven almost immediately, right? So if you have seen Hellraiser, you know that Clive Barker is sort of fascinated by skin, um, really into skin. Don't know why. Uh, and like the skin, absence of skin, cutting skin, taking the skin loss off. of skin. Basically, um, you know, all the ways that you can lose your skin. <laughs> yes, it's 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 not a fun thing. It's not an exciting thing, but it's 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 something that he obviously has thought about a lot. And uh, from a metaphoric standpoint, right? So we put on our, our literary hats for a second. The removal of skin to the re to reveal the nerves, muscle, bone and sinew underneath is a removal of your protective state, right? It's about mm -hmm. revealing what's inside, literally and figuratively. So, I mean, I understand from a literary standpoint why you would want to have a character remove their skin um, and what that indicates and represents about what's happening to their internal character states. But that's in a, in a story. In a film, when you see hanging skin, it has a very different effect. Yeah. <laughs> and so inside the room where this girl is being kept, where the baboon is, there is also a crucifix made of bone and draped in what appears to be skin. Sl slivers and strips of of human skin. We assume and it's human. It's, we're never really told that, but we're not given told. everything yeah. else going on, I think it's safe to assume it's it's human. Is it a safe bet? Yes. Um and what I want to point out about this is that it's totally backgrounded. It's just there. Mm -hmm. There is a shot that that sort of is looking through it. So, I mean, he's making us aware of its presence. I don't want to seem like it's just sort of like leaned up in a corner in the background or something. It's hanging in the middle of the room. It's spinning in its place. Like everything that you would it's expect. It's just not acknowledged. Nothing thing. in the scene it's, is acknowledged. No one notices. No one looks. Nix doesn't even go like, hey, check out my sweet skin crucifix you know, back here. In a modern <laughs> horror movie, that would be a set piece. It's the set piece. Exactly. You know, you'd have a musical and, cue and then you'd have the, the, the crucifix spinning around. You'd be like, oh my God. It would be lit from behind. Oh, yeah. Like the light would be shining through it. You'd it would see be the red, red light. You'd see the, <laughs> the transparency, the translucency of the skin. Like it would be, there would be a, at least 45 seconds of screen time devoted to this fucking thing. In this movie, nope. it's, the, it's, just, it's just there. It's just a part of the, it's just a part of the scene. It's just a thing that's if there. you would that's attend our regular cult meetings, you would know all about the crucifix. <laughs> you missed 
three meetings last month, I Carrie. Sent out what a do you expect about this? <laughs> I sent one out and you didn't read it. Yeah. Did you even read last month's newsletter? Did you? And it's 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 just such a fascinating thing. And it's and it's so Barker. Like this is one of the things about his directing style that I love. And I don't know if it's because to him and in his mind, this is just all super normal. Like, yeah, I mean, who doesn't have a skin crease? I think, I've got one I in the think he knows he knows that that's even creepier, like that that makes it scarier, yeah. that there's there is a big flesh cross and we're just not going to talk about it. And you're going to wonder for the rest of there. your life, what was the deal with that flesh cross? Now, I will say there is a scene in it coming up where the the cross is doing its spinning thing and then it spins around as Swan and, and all of his compatriots are in the room and, and Nix is hanging there. He has yeah. hung himself there. So, I mean, I, again, I don't want to make it sound like it's not a part of the movie and it's completely backgrounded. It's not. But there's no but like soundtrack beat. There's no, no. there's no big reveal. It's just not how we would make this movie. Usually. No, it's not how, it, and it's definitely not how a, a, a typical horror director would make a movie like this. And I think that's, again, one of the reasons why there are sort of indelible moments in here. Uh, so that is all quickly followed up by um, the, the members of Swan's troop, in this case, Quaid, uh, who is a, a young man. He's got a shotgun. We don't really know anything about him yet. We learn a little bit more later. He's just sort of exploring. They're trying to figure out where the girl is. And he comes across the cult who is eating raw something um yeah. goat maybe um don't don't really don't know. know and again we're not told <laughs> and um he's kicks open a door and they're all like laying on the ground and they're you know obviously they're getting ready to like do some sexy time stuff too this is not and an orgy you want to be invited to no but there's like a dead chicken that they're de-gizzarding uh, it's Cold you know, some sweet practical effects here, bro. And and they're just staring at this guy as he opens the door. And then there's this this sort of like chubby older guy with like a mustache, and he's got his hands out with like the heart in it, and he's just kind of like walking toward him, and be like, "Hey, you want some heart?" It's just it's so creepy, dude. Like it's just it's so creepy and off putting, and he, like they all stand up and they're covered in blood, and they're like, "Hey, you want some of this sweet blood?" And, <laughs> and they're just basically they're not they're not concerned. Right. That's the thing is like nobody's concerned about these people being there because they don't think they're powerful enough to stop Nick's in the first place. That, so it's it's this very. It's just again, this is a movie that just keeps doing things that you would not expect it to do. Right. You would think, oh, this guy walks into the room with a shotgun. All these cult members are going to rush him. There's going to be an action scene. They're going to like kick and punch. And they're like, no, it's cool. Like you could have some chicken gizzard if you want. We got plenty. You know, and we're not that worried about it because, you know, Nix is here and he's going to take care of all this. Yeah. Just cult and things. And it's just, just cult things. Yeah. Hashtag, <laughs> Hashtag just, just cult, cult things. things. <laughs> <laughs> so Swan finds the girl. Uh, Nix is, is suspended from his weird skin crucifix. And, and again, he's, he's not upset to see Swan. He's excited to see him. He's glad he's there. And and we get our first couple of of action beats of this. Um, one of you know, a couple of the people get hurt. You know, the cult members are kind of getting a little stabby, I guess, um, and intimidating. But I, I think the impression here too is that we're supposed to get that all of these people that Swan has brought with him that they were all kind of a part of this at one point. They all know each other, 
And, and that's something that I feel like the film could have developed more is, is what this cult was and how they were related to it. Not a ton. Again, the ambiguity probably works more in its favor, but there are some questions about, you know, how did all of this start? Where did Nick's come from? You know, some things like that, that pieces of my brain want to know more of. I don't know if it would have helped, honestly, probably not. But um, Butterfield, uh, the guy in the shorty shorts, who becomes very important to the rest of the story, he is really the first one to commit an act of violence. Yeah. He hurts one of them, he cuts her hand or something. And, and that becomes a sort of consistent thing that he does. He's like the only cult member who's willing to hurt, willing to hurt others at this point. Um, couple of creepy moments, uh, I guess Swan and Nick's in their confrontation, he inserts his fingers into Swan's brain, which unique skill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, it's like the Temple of Doom, you know, the, the reaching through the chest to the heart thing, definitely sort of playing on that idea, but much creepier. And he disables Swan somehow. Again, the, the powers that Nix is capable of, we, we don't really have a clear understanding of. Um, but he kind of knocks Swan onto his butt. And again, just seems really unconcerned that these people are all standing here with guns ready to kill him. And uh, we get our first little first little CG scene where Swan is sort of seeing. Uh, he sees Quaid kind of disintegrate like his skin all falls off and and. I guess it's supposed to be sort of revealing what's inside, like it's an illusion. Is that the impression you got? Yeah. Like, I feel like it was it was uh trying to make him see something to, to distract and confuse, like an actual illusion. Sure, yeah. Which again, who the Lord of Illusions is is nebulous. Uh the title is is it Swan? Um, is it Nix? Is it something else? There's a you know, a sort of ambiguity to that entire a process. But then Nix tunes to reference a previous uh, film that we've discussed, <laughs> uh, Dark City. Uh, he he uh, sort of sort of wibbly wobbly things come out of his mind yeah. that are creating an effect. And, and he's about to do something big, right? We get the impression that he's about to do something real big. And then he gets shot by Dorothea, the little girl. And, and he's very surprised by this turn of events, but Swan and his group sort of go to action because Swan has prepared for this. He knows that Nix can't likely be killed by traditional means. Yeah. They don't actually try to kill him. They just want to stop him momentarily so they can put on a binding device. A binding Which button. looks really again, badass. Like the design of it is really it cool. It does. It's so cool. It's, it's very reminiscent of like all of the design in Hellraiser, which I also love. Yes. It's it almost feels like it could have been a rejected idea from Hellraiser. Yeah. Like something that the Cenobites would do to someone. And then either for budgetary reasons or because just chains and fish hooks were enough. <laughs> <laughs> they they didn't use it, but they they bind him by putting this device that's obviously been sort of like specifically designed for this purpose. Yeah, it's like a um, bunch so of cast iron pieces mm-hmm. that they're strapping over his face. And they actually it 
the mechanism is engaged with blood. Mm-hmm. You have to pour blood on it to make like the screws go in. They bind his eyes, they bind his mouth. And then there's like this ceiling piece that puts them all together. And again, it's a very Hellraiser looking thing. It's. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's very cool. It's almost hard to describe. Um, and as he's being bound, we see all these cult members sort of, I guess, realizing that Nix's power is diminishing or, or something bad has happened. And so they're, they're not running away necessarily. They're just sort of despondent. Uh, again, this is where like, I'm not sure that Clive Barker's editing instincts are that good. Um, because in that moment, we should really be in the room. We should be in the room while this is happening with the people who are doing it, not out with the, the, the cultists. Cause there's like a shot of a lady in a bed just kind of writhing around. And then there's another guy just like sitting with a snake in a chair <laughs> while these things are happening. Maybe it's a ratings thing. Maybe they felt they had, you know, they couldn't show much more of that with yeah, apparently away. Was maybe there was, yeah. Like maybe there was a, a component of that where they're cutting away because they're, you know, trying to keep the R rating instead of getting bumped to an NC 17, which is always something that Clyde Barker struggles with. Like all of his movies have had tremendous amounts of cuts to keep them from being, you know, NC 17 classified, but the scene ends with Butterfield, the, uh, which I, I guess we can talk about him briefly. Like he's meant to be in a lot of the seventies cult exploitation movies. There's always like the right hand, man woman you know there's there's that character and he's like the the most loyal acolyte right like that's what he's painted as you know perhaps since swan left he was the one that got all the attention um but he's got the his eyebrows are bleached which is a choice i guess i don't know if it's he's he's also got heterochromia one eye is like super blue and then one eye is just kind of more normal so I don't know if it's it's him saying that he's been touched by something that he's you know absorbed some bit of Nix's ability or power or something. We don't really have any idea. But Butterfield becomes sort of the main antagonist of the film because he, over the course of these last thirteen years, has attempted to to put together the pieces so that he can bring Nix Nix back. Like he knows that Nix is not truly dead, and so it's. His introduction, you know, as Nick dies, he's sort of running off into the desert. And then we kind of end the sequence with him looking back and, you know, guttural scream slash howl at uh, Nick's being taken from him. And, and then we, we flash forward from there again. I think it's a great opening sequence. Um, it's one of those that, you know, if, if it was just a little bit longer, it could almost be its own little standalone short film, really. And, and I like that. I think a good cold open to a movie or a TV show, that's what it should be. A sort of self-isolated, here's the story. It's going to relate to the rest of the story, right? Like The, the pieces are all going to play later, but this as a chunk works. And it, it really comes close to that. I think there are, again, some odd cuts, some weird choices. But, you know, if, if I was going to make a little short film of like a bunch of like <laughs> exorcist tactical forces guys coming in and like taking someone out, this would be about it. It would be about that length. It would have, you know, sort of the same flow and sequence of action. It's solid and it's a good way to open the film. And and I think engaging despite its flaws. Um, what do you think? I, like I said, I, I like this. I love Von Barge and I think he's 
so great. I love his voice and I love his presence and I really, really love the design of that that helmet thing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. This is I I like anything that that opens and immediately gives me lots and lots of questions. Um, because then you know I get yeah. excited for the rest of the movie, and that's what this does. It's really effective. Yeah, it's it's a great opener. So. Then we flash forward. Uh, we don't necessarily know in time how long we flash forward, although it's based on the cars. Um, you know, it's obviously a different different time period. And we're in New York. We get introduced very quickly to Scott Bakula as Harry Demore, and and I think this is this is really good casting because again, Demore is the classic neo noir detective, right? That's that's who this character is, and and he's so he's you know, Philip Marlowe. Um, He's he's one of these sort of like hard-boiled detective characters. But what a lot of people forget about the hard-boiled detective characters, especially from the sort of later, you know, detective novels of that era, is that they're they're a little goofy. Like and not in a bad way, right? Like they're laconic and world-weary and kind of like, man, just fuck all this. Like it like that attitude. Melodrama. I mean, there's a lot yeah, of that. Like, I mean, even if you go back to something like the Maltese Falcon or all the Bogart detectives, you know, movies from the 40s, he's just over it. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't. I, and, and Bakula here is a really good. He's a really good choice for that, in my opinion, because a Scott Bakula will will always be lovable. Like the man just has a lovable face. He, he has a lovable demeanor. He brings dad vibes to everything that he does. And I love that. Yes. You know, aside from the fact that he's he's a legitimately good looking guy, like he's just an attractive human being, but yet he also radiates. Maybe it's that quizzical look that he can do with his face. Like he's one of those dudes that can kind of arch his eyebrows down from the middle where his like they go up <laughs> and then down, which I think just the natural like that. That's how his face works. It's just this sort of natural kind of lovable expression. And so for Harry Demore. You need to believe that both he's good at what he does. He's a good detective. You've got to believe that. But you also have to believe that he's sort of a good guy. Because he's going to try and do what's right. That's kind of essential for a good detective character. right? Not that they aren't flawed. Not that they won't be self-serving or make mistakes. But that at the end of the day, they're they're good dudes. And, and Bakula is pitch perfect for that. Yeah. To the point that I wish that he, I wish that he'd gotten the chance to play a character like this in a more successful film. Yeah. Because I think he would have made a lot of them in many ways. He does kind of come back to this archetype when he led NCIS Los Angeles or no New Orleans. One of those, <laughs> he did one of those shows. One of them. I, it was either NCIS I or think CSI it was New Orleans or whatever. Yes. And, and he's like, you know, the head, de- you know, detective guy of the thing and whatever. I-, I watched one episode and it was fine, but I can't, I don't like shows like that traditionally. And, and so, but I like, but the reason, do you know why I watched it? Because he was in it. Because Scott Bakula was in it. It's the only reason he's I great. even watched one episode was because Scott Bakula was the lead. And I'm like, well, I got to watch it if Bakula's in it. No question. And so I think he's great as Harry Demore. Also, he um, doesn't seem to be aging. I don't like. Have no, you noticed no, that? He's, that's yeah. That's the only unwholesome thing about him is that he doesn't age, and that's weird. 
it is a little weird. It's Reeves ish of him. He needs to get a, he needs to get that looked at. Um, but he's, he's really good here. And I think he plays a good sort of laconic detective character. And, and I'm, I think he may be one of the best reasons to check this out. If, if you haven't seen it, it's just his performance, his take on this kind of character. The other thing that I will mention just real, real briefly about his character is his uh, dress. Like the way he is dressed. Um, it's very nineties. Please do not misunderstand. Like 90s there, are a lot of, there are a lot of pleated pants in this movie, like a lot of pleated pants, the comfort, but something, <laughs> Well, you got to have room in there, yeah. right? That's how you got room for the It should look scenes. like you could have at least two of your legs in each pant leg. <laughs> <laughs> but Bacula makes it work. It has almost like an Indiana Jones-ish flair to his look. Just it's almost it's almost more classic than it is 90s even though it is very 90s. I mean, he is wearing a patterned vest in his first scenes in LA. We all had a couple. So I don't want to make it seem like the design is, is all 100% good. The V-neck t-shirt. It's a good look. He's in a lot of like <laughs> he's in a lot of like long sleeve Henleys. He's where he he's wearing uh motorcycle boots for the whole thing, which there is nothing that does good things for a silhouette for a human male. There are very few things that do better for your silhouette than motorcycle boots. Square toe motorcycle boots. And and he's wearing square toe motorcycle boots and a good chunk of this that look great. I mean, again, it's it's a good detective look, right? Barker knows his male gaze. He knows mm-hmm. what makes a man look good um, by experience, and he executes on that. Mm-hmm. And so you can tell. I, supposedly, he didn't even make Bacula. I don't even think he made him audition. I think he hired him just based on his headshots and his look. Just like that's it. That's the guy. And and you can kind of tell that he's he's exactly what Barker was going for. And I think there's a real synergy there. So the the movie transitions really quickly from New York to L.A. Right. We're, we're in New York, quote unquote, which is like a street and then an apartment. And that's it for two seconds. And now we're in Los Angeles. And there's a and poem. It's very classic you know it's Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. The the first shot is the, you know, in the car, looking up at the palm trees, like just exactly what you'd expect sun sun-kissed beaches it's it's los angeles um and and we get right down to business demore is is there to do like an insurance fraud claim right very typical traditional detective work he finds the guy he follows him he's got he's compiling evidence that he's not really hurt or whatever it is doesn't really matter and he winds up at a fortune teller's shop and this fortune teller is quaid from the opening. Um, it's not highlighted necessarily. Um, it, it is clarified later, but uh, the actor that they got to play Quaid, you know, they, they put a, you know some facial hair on him. They change his hairstyle a bit. Like you can kind of tell, but it's not super clear right from the get go, which I think is kind of nice. But as he approaches, he sees uh, the guy that he's following takes off and he goes in to investigate and he finds Quaid and he has just been stabbed by a lot of knives a lot of sharp things scissors all knives, the sharp things needle isn't and, there a needle or something stuck in him too there's some needles yeah just, just, it's just anything you know, sharp that might really have been painful. around <laughs> it does it's like you know acupuncture but gone wrong yeah you know acupuncture where maybe not the patient's by a best, professional <laughs> the patient's best interests were not in the the acupuncturist's you know 
mind at that point. It's like, yeah, no, I'll, I'll just hurt you. Um, so he sees the body and then he gets attacked by skinhead guy, um, skinhead guy with filed down teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know his name. It doesn't really matter what his name is. He dies eventually anyway, but he, he gets into a, a knockdown, you know, fist fight with this skinhead guy. And, and as I was watching it, I remembered something about film, especially in the eighties, nineties, and, and I would say early two thousands. And that is whenever you saw a guy just as visual shorthand, right? Like say I'm trying to communicate to you that this guy is bad. Um, all you had to do was put the Nazi SS symbol on his yeah. clothing at some point. <laughs> I noticed that too. And just, and just the moment you did that, you're like, oh, this guy is bad. Nazi punk. Um, unfortunately, like- I think that's changed. Um, I don't know if yeah. that is the same well, now, I mean, which makes is. me real sad. But, I mean, philosophically, it is. It, philosophically, it would still yes. be bad people. But yeah, we don't do that in well, movies anymore. Right. Movies don't use that shorthand anymore because, I don't know, the South. I'm not <laughs> Sorry, people from the South. Uh, We're just funning on that. just funning. Fun but yeah, I just, I remembered that, you know, because this movie needs to establish that this man is bad really quickly because he's just attacking Harry and we don't know the circumstances. And, and the two so, you know, best ways are Nazi and Sharp Teeth. Nazi and sharp teeth. We know he a bad man. I would not trust someone who's filed their teeth. Not right away. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I I mean, I could come to trust them eventually, but they'd have to, they'd have to prove it to me first. Why did you file your teeth? (laughs) And so this, this action sequence, uh, we, we get a, a, you know, there's a, a little bit of a fight and that's fine. You know, it's, it's executed well, but this is a film that I would say, uh, struggles with action. I don't really think Barker knows how to shoot and cover action. Um, at least not super effectively. It's, it's functional, but it is not exciting to watch. And so, um, skinhead guy, you know, Barker has, has, um, Bacula move into the room. He sees Quaid and the circumstances that he's in very specifically, and, and he wants to help. Butterfield is there, um, obviously the one who's perpetrated this, but he's kind of in the shadows. And then the skinhead guy wakes up, and, and we get kind of an awkward scene where no one's really saying anything. They're all just kind of staring at each other. And then Butterfield makes some vague, intimidating gestures, and then the skinhead guy wakes up, and he literally chews through the door, or at least that's what it feels like. Yeah. He just kind of rips the door to pieces, and Bacula realizes there's an open window, so he lets him run in the open window and then he just kind of kicks him through it. And it's really good. Like, it's actually like, yes, that's because the, the thing that makes a person a detective instead of a superhero is that they're usually on their back foot and outgunned, but they use their wits, no matter how dull they may be to get out of the situation. That's what makes a good detective story, right? It's not about having superiority in any area. It's about a combination of wit and, in, and enough intelligence and strength and sort of cunning to be able to weasel your way out of a situation that should kill you. That's what makes good detectives. And, and that's exactly what he does here. Like, he's not going to be able to physically overpower this guy. He cannot beat him in a fight. So instead, I'm just going to use his own momentum to kick him out this window and, and get rid of him that way. Well, and, you Once know, that happens, Butterfield runs. Detectives always kind of lean into that underdog thing anyway, mm-hmm. where, you know, you, you aren't the tough guy, but 
you get the job done, I guess. Of of this noir, uh, of the noir persuasion, I guess we should yeah. specify. You know, this is not, he's not a Sherlock Holmes. That's no. using his incredible powers of deduction to solve the case. Although I would watch that. I would too. <laughs> I actually, one of the, one of the things that I have always loved is the idea of a Sherlock Holmes pure reason slash logic detective going up against a supernatural force, but doggedly and unrelentingly maintaining that there are logical and reasonable explanations for the things that he's seeing. Even yeah. like he gets bitten by a demon and he's like, no, 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 it's actually this. Well, that's what I makes think the that X-Files would be so hilarious. Mad. Yeah. I mean, that is the X-Files formula or at least the Scully's the Scully component of it. It's just the constant rationalization. <laughs> Everything is fine, even though it's obviously not. So, um, so we move past that scene. Demore is questioned, which I think there probably would be a little bit more that they would want from him. But again, you know, as a detective, he's going to have his proper licenses and say, hey, here's what was going on. And then he's going to. And he's got paperwork saying, this is the guy I was supposed to be watching and here's what I found. And... Exactly. Which again, very legitimate detective story stuff, which you can tell that's that Barker has, you know, an affinity for the genre um, and is is playing with that here. So the, the skinhead guy survives, unfortunately, um, and Butterfield is is still on the hunt. Right, we're introduced to the tools that he's developed to try and, and rescue Nick's, I suppose. But I guess we should should mention at least briefly his attire, which is very nineties. Um, I believe they are they are gold leather pants. Gold lame pants. I guess they're leather. Yep. They're they are lame. Okay. I, I, I had that word in my head. I was like, are they gold lame? And I was I was unsure. It's like, is that even a thing? Because I haven't used that word probably it since. It has like a nineties club kid look. And it's I, a club club I look. Love yeah, it. it's almost like party monsters or something. Cute. You know? But yeah, he's got like this this super tight sort of ribbed shirt on and then these gold lame pants. He's got the buzzed and Caesar I, cut hair where this, it's like Ooh, the Caesar cut with the little twist in the front. <laughs> Again, it's you can tell that Clive Barker is like, this is hot. I love the way this looks. Let's you film are it going like to this. this. <laughs> and and it totally works. And and if there's any director in the world who would know, it's Clive Parker. Yeah. Um. So so we've seen the seedy underbelly, right? We've seen the 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 darkness that is developing in in Los Angeles around what's going on, and then we cut to this immaculate mansion, right? This impossible mansion in the hills of of Hollywood or, or somewhere, and a pool, and there's like an art installation. It's it's gorgeous. And then, of course, Fomke Jansen gets out of a pool. And, of course, she's Fomke Jansen, so she's beautiful. And then we, we catch up with Swan, who is in his, his dark little study, contemplating the world and the deep things and getting ready for his show that night. So it's, it's a nice contrast. I like. I love the way the office is decorated. Just there's Indeed. so much stuff. I wish, I wish we had more time in some of these sets because they're so nice. And there's so much detail. Yes. I I love how tortured Swan is, right? I don't know if we need to to labor over everything that the film is trying to do to set up his character because it's not a lot, honestly. Like Swan does not get a ton of screen time in this, which I think is is another kind of weakness. I have a feeling in in some of the stuff that was eventually cut, you know, maybe there was more. But Swan just seems tired yeah. and tortured. But I agree. His office is great. There's Houdini posters and, you know, Fu Manchu and just all of the stuff that, you know, you would associate with a magician 
right? An illusionist of the classic sort of Las Vegas show variety. There's great posters, which I'm sure that Clive Barker then just immediately took to his house <laughs> and are now hanging somewhere they were all there. From At least his that's, house. <laughs> they may have been from his house. So then we meet Valentin and and basically what what is sort of tying everything together and what's making Quaid worried or what's making Swan worried is that they realize that it is Quaid who has been killed, that he has been been tortured. There's a great picture of Harry in the newspaper. Um, so that's how they kind of find out about him since Harry was the one who discovered the body. And and that's how Harry enters the story is they they need more information about what was going on with Quaid. Harry was there, so they bring him in. I again it's it's a great sort of detective setup, right? This is how this is how these things would happen. You know, Harry doesn't know anything about Swan. He doesn't have any idea about you know, this, this hidden world that he's about to unlock, none of that. He's got to be drawn into it. And so his involvement with Quaid's murder brings him into this world. He meets Dorothea, uh, again, Tomka Johnson's character. He meets Valentin and Dorothea kind of lays out the situation. Um, I guess it's worth noting that it's, it's saved as a sort of later reveal, but Dorothea, and I don't think this is a reveal necessarily. They they kind of turn it into one, but I think it's kind of obvious that this is what's happened. But Dorothea is the young girl from mm-hmm. Nix's compound that Swan rescued. He has basically protected her. Eventually they married. And and the status of their marriage is one of the questions of the film. It seems like a loveless marriage. I mean, Swan is like 20 years older than her, um, which is a little weird. bit creepy, I guess. Um, it's a little weird. But it seems like they do have a deep affection for each other. Like they have had each other's backs for a long time at the very least. But but it's it's implied later that Swan does love her and married her with intention. Um, but he wanted to provide for her a life. Because I think it's insinuated uh, that Nix killed her parents as well. Like her, her family is dead. Um, so she didn't really have anybody. And Swan kind of took her in and took care of her. This is really where the film starts to gather steam for me, though, because I love magic. I love illusion. I love Penn and Teller, David Copperfield. I mean, I grew up watching, you know, we all gathered around and watched David Copperfield disappear, the Statue of Liberty and all that shit. Like it was just a thing when I was growing up that that, that there was this new crop of impossible illusionists doing things that you could never you know, never contemplate or comprehend. And it was just, a, it's just wormed into my brain that that's cool. Even though guys in black shirts dancing around on stages with their, you know, doing jazz hands is not cool. Like I know this, <laughs> but it is, it is like, it just is. I'm sorry, David Blaine. He may be an asshole. I don't know, but he's cool. And watching him do shit like that is cool. Um, David Copperfield. also cool. I watched a video with David Copperfield not too long ago where he was breaking down magic in movies. And I was like, And so it's that. And so here's where the story begins to blend together that Swan, who has obviously had this touch of the supernatural, he has learned real magic, just like Nick's of some kind, is now masquerading as an illusionist, right? As a person who is faking it. And that blend, and that's what made the short story work so well for me too, because that is pulled directly from the short story that Swan was an illusionist by trade, but he was a magician for real. That whole concept just it makes all of these little nerve endings in my brain just go like yes more of this please because that's what your brain wants to believe that's what makes the illusionist so alluring is that you look at it and go like could that be real it, are they doing something real and your brain knows that they're not right it's the same reason why you would watch ghost hunters or some shit yeah. right it's like no of course it's not it's real fake, but it's fun 
<laughs> it's fun. And in the moment that your brain lets loose, loose just enough to go like, could it, could it? That's a fun place to be. That's a fun moment to sort of look at the world for a second and say, I don't know. I'm not sure. And that's a great place. And any stories that exploit that, that make me feel that for even a fraction of a second, because I'm a very rational and kind of pragmatic dude, 99.99999% of the time where I go like, nope, not a thing. That's okay. But that little bit of wonder in the world, mm, it's so tasty. And I just, mm, 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 <laughs> want more of that, right? And so that's, that's what gets played on here. And so Swan is preparing to do a brand new trick. And of course. we saw a tarot card that related to it. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's classic stuff. Oh, it's a brand new trick, never been done. And it is, it is a play on the sword of Damocles, right? Which here is where Clive Barker as a writer brings something special to a movie like this, right? So Swan knows and has known for a long time that he is living on borrowed time. Nix is not dead. His followers are still out there. He has been waiting for the sword to fall for this entire time. So he designs a trick called the sword, like that is the sword of Damocles, to kill him so that he can escape the fate that he believes is coming, the fate that is inevitable. Chef's kiss, man. Yeah. I mean, like, what a great image from classical mythology to integrate into your movie, right? I mean, like, I can't think of many writers... I mean, and I'm not insulting screenwriters here, but screenwriters generally don't don't worry have, about having those kind of layers. They have very know? objective based writing goals. You know, like I have mm -hmm. to do this and this and this in this amount of time. And it seems like Clive Barker is just not giving a shit about any of that. <laughs> it's like, no, no I want to no. do it this way. And so this this new trick that they're going to do, they invite Harry to the show because they feel like something's going to happen. Right. They're afraid that whoever got to Quaid are gonna, is going to get to is going to get to Swan. And so they invite him to the show so they can kind of step into their world and be involved. And so, again, this is kind of related to the original short story where Harry's basically called in as, as muscle, right? Like, we just need somebody to be here to take care of this if something happens. And he shows up, they run the trick, and the trick kills Swan, right? The swords fall through his body in a horrific yeah. action scene. It's excruciating. It, looks, <laughs> it is painful to watch because. I mean, and, and again, I, I know we've, we've kind of harped on Clive Barker being a gay man, but as as an open and and very vocal member of the homosexual community, he, he just he knows how to make men feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and so one of the swords of Damocles in this goes right through Swan's dick, yeah. like right through it. And it is obvious and it is it is shown and it's not like, you know, and it's not, this isn't jackass, right? This isn't a nut shot where you go like, oh, oh, oh look at what happened to his nuts. No, like, it's like this is torture. Oh, God. Yeah, like, it's it's bad. And it's, I and I, again, I think that's one of the things that Barker specializes in is that in horror movies, generally, and this is one of the, the weaknesses of the genre that fortunately is being sort of rectified as we move forward, men typically are the ones that have all of the power, right? The men do not generally fear for their lives in the same way that women do. They still die. Like, understand, like Kevin, Kevin, um, Kevin J. O'Connor. Uh, no, it, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Friday the oh, 13th. Okay. Um, Trimmer's Kevin. Oh, oh yeah. Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Kevin Bacon. He's going to get an arrow through the neck, right? 
but he gets to have sex first, right? He's going to die in the throes of, of, you know, post orgasmic pleasure because he was confident that he was going to be okay. And then he wasn't. I don't think Clive, Clive Barker is very good at putting men in peril in his films and not just the kind of peril that's like, oh, and then he's dead. It's peril of torture. torture. <laughs> like, you're going to torture feel all of this before yes. you die. All of this is going to hurt you. And and it's a, it's something that's unique to him. The mixture in Hellraiser, I guess, was enough that people were okay with it, even though I think that that movie, the, the torture that Frank undergoes, I guess it's kind of self-inflicted, so that's maybe how you can rationalize it away. Oh, well, if I'm a good dude, you know, if I'm a, I'm a bro. Maybe I won't get a chain through the nuts. No. But, you know, that's not really what Clive Barker's saying, right? He's like, no, like, this is what happens. We just want men, you to see this horrible you know? thing. And and so, I, you know, again, I don't want to harp on it too much, but it is something that I feel has kept his, has maybe kept his films from that mainstream appeal, is because that is not a position that a lot yeah. of male horror fans expect to be in when they go to And they don't like it. No. And and in many ways may reject it. Now, again, I think there is a, a type of fan. There is a, a, a group of fans like us I guess, <laughs> um, that are like, yeah, put a sword through that guy's dick. He deserved it. <laughs> but it's 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 a it's a sort of strange place to be. But so the sort of Damocles happens. Uh, Swan very publicly and visibly dies. And and then, you know, Damore is left to kind of pick up the pieces with Valentin and Dorothea. And so this is all part of a much larger plot. I, I guess we don't have to belabor exactly what's going on here because the second act of the film, unfortunately, slows down. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of like back and forth stuff here as, as we're meant to be confused. We're meant to be sort of on the back foot because we don't really know what's going on. We the film sets up Swan as being this essential and important character. We've, we know he's got history with what's happening and then he dies. And we're not led to believe under any circumstances that his death is not true, right? Like he dies. We see him die. It is violent. It's bloody. It's tragic. People are freaking out. But of course the reveal is, is that this too is an illusion that Swan has enacted to, he says to protect Dorothea from Nix because he believes that if he's gone, Nix will have no interest in her. Which again seems like a shaky logical ground <laughs> to take, um, but what this does lead Harry on then is is his attempt to understand magic. And if the second act is is weaker, yes, this part of it though is really fun, um, because Harry they they go to Magic Castle, which is a, a real place in in Los Angeles. And Harry actually has a round table with a bunch of magicians. And some of the magicians in the scene are real. Some of them are actors. Uh, Vincent, Vincent Schiavelli, I guess, uh, is there. Yeah. Um, just yeah. a, a recently passed away, wonderful, you know, sort of character actor. One of those dudes, if you see his face, you know exactly who mm -hmm. he is. He's been in all kinds of stuff. Um, but he is there playing a playing a magician. I forget his name. Uh, Vinovich um, or Vinovich. Vinovich, yeah. And I... <laughs> He has a ridiculous accent until he's it's He's got fake. this, oh, I'm Vinovich. <laughs> and as he's leaving, that's one of my favorite scenes of this movie, as he's leaving Scott Bakula or, or Harry Demore is like, hey, it's a great accent. Where's that from, Brooklyn? And he's like, fuck you, buddy. <laughs> it's just like, it's great because Demore sees right through it. And and that's kind of the cool thing is as the skeptic, right, as the, the scully, 
if you will, um, Demore gets to poke at a lot of the illusion stuff. And so it maintains that facade that, you know, oh, all of this is fake. All of it's just, you know, just smoke and mirrors, you know, blah, blah, blah. And but yet he's getting pulled into that world and maybe starting to question whether that's true or not. And I I don't know. I mean, the the whole this whole sequence of him going to the castle and sort of learning more about magic, discovering the 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 secret repository of all the magic tricks in the world. Uh very silly. I mean, very silly, but also awesome. Yeah. Uh so he he hooks up with another magician that I don't know are they, are they supposed to have known each other Billy um I guess is the other I did I mean um how did they know each other I don't know I, don't I was trying to did. figure it out I think they out. just kind of buddy up They just kind of bond there yeah I guess and the actor who played him I I had to do a double take cuz it looked like Mark Dacascos <laughs> At first, I was like, is that Mark DeCascos? Because I didn't remember him being in the movie, but I was looking, I was like, God, that looks like him. And it's not. It's it's just another actor, uh, a guy named Lauren Stewart. Uh, and and really he he only he only did this. Yeah. That's that's this is all he's done. Uh, but he's really good as well. But they break into this kind of magic vault that's at this this place and eventually find a sort of locked cabinet. because um, Butterfield had a and again, this is really classic detective story stuff. Um, he gets into a fight with the the sharp tooth man again under Swan's um, trick. Kills him by running his body through a, a pipe from an hourglass that spits out <laughs> sand, which is it's just so cool. Like he he puts this pipe through him, and then the sand like all pours out. Really nice. It's a really really cool. That was effect. cool. Day. Is a cool death, man. I mean, that's why you go to these movies, right? You want to see these, <laughs> these cool, just interesting deaths. Shit happen. And 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 we get that, and and so he kills him, but he has this tattoo that he recognizes a, a symbol that's you know on these shelves, and Billy presses the symbol, and it opens this secret compartment, and there's like deep, real magic inside, and it's stuff about Nix and transfer of power. Again, I feel like this is something that they they probably spent more time exploring because it just gets dropped after this. Like in essence, all it really provides is Harry to ask a question later. Like, was he really a magician or who was Nix? And then that just kind of takes over from there. And I think that's one of the weaknesses. But one thing Barker said was the, the one thing the studio wanted to continually excise from the film was the detective elements. They wanted to take the detective stuff out and just make it more of a straight horror film. And Barker fought tooth and nail to keep every bit of the detective stuff in that he could. But I feel like this is, there was more stuff here that just didn't get to stay. Because, I mean, you know, they've got this book. They've, you know, it's talking about these spells. It seems like Harry would have gone through those materials, developed a set of questions, and then investigated on them. And and it just doesn't happen, which is really unfortunate. Because, in essence, what it makes him realize or at least believe is that swan faked his own death and that's kind of where things take off and that's really how the second act closes is harry's realization that swan is not actually dead so he goes into the um 
and I, I think this this is from the short story, if I remember correctly. But he goes in, he kicks the casket open, and finds that the body inside is fake. It's a, a Hollywood prop for all intents yeah. and purposes, which is a great again. We're making a movie. The movie's fake. You know, blah blah blah. It's it's nice, multi layered. It references itself. It rhymes anyway. It's like poetry. It's like poetry. <laughs> Thank you for that line, George. I'll use it for my for the rest of my life. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Um, but yeah. So anyway, he he figures out that Swan is dead, but then he decides to go along with it because Valentin says this is all about keeping Dorothea safe. So then it becomes about staking out his funeral and seeing if they can spot someone who has come to observe and he spots Swan in makeup and a beard and stuff. And so he hunts him down. He, for some reason, Swan is living in like the LA sewer, <laughs> which I don't, I mean, I love it. It's a great scene that he's like going through the sewers and finds this little, like this little hovel where he's got like a little bench and he's got a sofa and he's got his little makeup kit. And I'm like, the dude's still a millionaire, right? Like he could have just, but then people would know. Rented a hotel. People would know. Well, and he's an illusionist, but his disguise was to put on a mustache. Put on a mustache and a beard. Just yep, a mustache. That's all you got to do, man. Enjoy. Well, he has a beard at the funeral, but then by the time he finds him in the sewer, he's just, it's just wearing a mustache. mustache. Which again makes me think that there's there were steps in between point A and point B. But so whatever. Uh, Bacula looks good. He's in this like long sleeve Henley. He's got his motorcycle boots on. He's open carrying in downtown Los Angeles with a handgun. It's it's glorious. But then we get uh, a scene where again, he re- Swan reveals his powers to Harry truly for the first time, which is he's Harry like comes in and he's talking to nobody, but he knows Swan's there. And then he looks up and there's like a car. Yeah. He's like full of swinging a car above him. And, and then just drops it on him, Yoda which stuff. is very cool. Kind of an inefficient way to kill someone, if I'm being honest. But it's I mean, neat. probably do it easier, <laughs> but it's cool. Looks good. I did also notice um, that if you, as the car pans up, you know, because he like realizes he's under the car, he he looks up, the camera pans up, you see the underneath of the car. You can totally see the strap <laughs> on the center <laughs> that's holding it. Like you could just see the strap that's like wrapped around it, but it's like, whatever. It's the 90s. Um, but so he drops the car, they have a moment. And then, you know, basically Swan like lays it all out. Like, here's what's going on. He is very angry because Scott Bakula did indeed have sex with Pomka Jansen the night before. Um, but Well, we thought you were dead, bro. We thought you were dead, bro. And she thought you were dead and she was real upset. And I was like, I'm all about Pomka comforting Jansen. upset ladies. <laughs> That's right. Which I, I did notice on my, I watched it a couple of times before this because we took a little bit of an extended break in between just, you know, life stuff. But um, I did watch it a couple of times and the way that they're like mourning it is shot. I, I don't know. There was something about the setup because it's it's a shot reverse for the most part. And Bacula's kind of laying back in bed and it's shot sort of low at him up onto the pillow. And then Johnson is laying across his stomach, like up against his stomach. And he's kind of they're kind of folded over each other. And it's obvious that, you know, they're both still nude. And I don't know, just his Scott Bakula's like hip and leg are like the top of the frame. And then she is like nestled in between his stomach and basically covering his his penis mm-hmm. in the shot. And it's just it's just super sick. I, I, I looked at it. I was like, I don't think I've ever seen a shot reverse shot of two people in bed shot quite like that because it's not 
shot to make Famke Jansen look sexy. It's shot to make, make Scott to make him look, look sexy. Because it's his hip and leg that are kind of like draped over her. And I was just like, again, only Clive Barker would shoot yeah, this like it's, scene it's that way. Yeah, it's not exploitative would... of her at all. I mean, there are some other scenes where it, she's clearly supposed to look hot. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, but he's still got to sell I this just to like a bunch there's of always a balance. It's, it is balanced, right? Like there is... It is, he is just as concerned about making men beautiful in the frame as he is about making women beautiful, which is just in a world of Michael Bay's and Brett Ratner's. It's refreshing. It's it's refreshing. It's just not something that you see in in especially this genre of film, right? You see it in others, of course. I mean, there are lots and lots of, of really good dramatic directors, um, you know, gay directors. LGBTQ plus directors who are are helping to change the way that the language of film works. It has taken a long time. And this was 1995. This is 95, right? I mean, like this is, I mean, this is like the emergence of Michael Bay into the action scene. And, and again, this was not a film that was commercially successful. So I don't want to make it seem like he's blazing trails, I guess. But, but in retrospect, there's a maturity to how the gay, how gaze is handled in this, yeah. right? Both male and, and female um, that you just were starting to see more commonly now, but was certainly not common when this film came out. Um, so in any case, it's just, it's again, it's refreshing as, as a modern film viewer to look back at a film from the nineties and not just immediately cringe because it's like, Oh, look at that chick's butt. Oh, here's, here's, here's some boobies for you. Like yeah. it, it's just, it's nice because it's, it's so common especially in horror of the mid nineties, like so common. I mean, even rewatching scream not too long ago. Um, when, uh, she walks out into the garage mm-hmm. and, and her nipples are so hard. I, it's just like, look at, I going like, did, could you have reshot this? Yeah. Could you have let her No, Because that was clearly the intention that <laughs> that was the point, yeah. right? Somebody, turned the AC up in the studio that day so that they could have that shot. And again, I, I, I don't want to pick on scream scream is this is a victim of a genre that has done that kind of shit for decades. So I don't want to make it seem like Wes Craven's a bad filmmaker. He's not, I think he's especially in his later stuff. He was one of the more mature horror directors, but that kind of stuff. Now you watch and you just kind of go like, man, did we, did we have to do that? Did it make the scene better? I don't know. And I mean, there are a couple of shots like that here too. I don't want to, again, I'm not trying to paint Clive Barker as but, a misunderstood. But it's, it's genius, still, it's, it's just a balance that doesn't exist in a lot of balance, horror movies. Right. And that's, it is really refreshing. Um, so really all of this is leading, you know, Swan comes back, reveals that he's alive. Um, we, well, in between that, we do get like the worst CG shot ever mm. in this movie because after they, get together or maybe before yeah, I think it's after they get together. He comes downstairs and the fire. Um, <laughs> there is, there is a fireman. Um, and it's, it's very evocative of Hellraiser. It's sort of this patterned geometric thing that's floating in midair. It's, we're meant to believe that it's Swan. Yeah. So this happens before they, oh, no, it was after they, it, was they, after. it was, it was after. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but basically there is a CG effect of it, like a geometric shape man. Right. So he like folds up and unfolds and reappears and there's some fire, probably a mix of practical and non 
non-practical fire sort of blended together. But the CG effect on the geometric man is... Uh, it's rough. It's real bad. And they're trying to combine it with some really aggressive camera moves, which this is not a film that has had aggressive camera moves. Like, this has had no aggressive camera moves whatsoever. It's very sort of, like, static. Put camera, do thing, change position, put camera, do thing. It's very much that. But this one has like there's a tracking there. Well, there's there's like a, a steady cam shot like is he's running away and the little fireman is chasing him. And it just it doesn't work. It does not work at all. It is it is real bad. Um, I mean, this was a low budgeted film in 95. This was like 11 million dollars, which was for a movie that's trying to do all the things that this movie is. That's nothing like literally nothing. And so I'm not sure why they chose to go. I, I have a feeling you could have done this somewhat practically, but I, I don't know. Barker is a very specific visual stylist. He has things that look specific ways in his mind. You can tell that that's a huge component of his process. But man, whew, this no, no good. No bueno. Mm -hmm. uh, to the point that it, it, it will pull you out of the film when you see it. You'll, you'll immediately kind of recoil and go like, oh. Oh, oh no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's supposed to be like this really tense scene, right? Like when nobody knows what's going on and there's fire and it's bad and you cannot experience any of that emotion with this visual effect. It is egregiously bad. Like again, lawnmower man <laughs> level CG. It's not good. Here we go picking on um, lawnmower man again. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> it's I a mean, terrible movie. <laughs> <sighs> I it introduced the world to Jeff Fahey and that that is good because Jeff Fahey is good but no don't go watch Lawnmower Man it's so bad uh, so anyway that that happens it's terrible try to forget about it and move on because it, it has no plot relate there's nothing related to it it doesn't need to exist <clears throat> Um, and then the the funeral stuff and the confrontation with Swan happens the next day. But in essence, Swan knew that Nix was probably coming back or there was a risk. He knew that Butterfield or someone was out there and he was just going to take himself out of the picture so that, you know, Nix would stop looking for him, which again, not all that smart, but that was the plan. So really, then it becomes about Butterfield finding out where Nix is because only a few people know Swan was one, which is why he was trying to get him so he could torture him and find out where Nix was. But unfortunately, Valentin, the, the manservant also knew where Nix was. So Butterfield tortures him. And that is also really, really disturbing. Really horrible. Yep. <laughs> um, and again, it's Barker just knows the pain points. He knows the places where you can hurt somebody where you're just going to go. Like, yeah. Like what's going to make the audience cringe oh. the hardest. It's this. And so, <laughs> so Butterfield is a knife man. He likes the knives. He was whittling the skull, right? So he's, he's a knife boy and he has scalpels, many scalpels, so many scalpels. And, and he decides that the best way to make Valentin talk would be to cut into his gums. Mm. With a knife. Mm. And I am very fortunate that the the only cuts that I've had in my mouth have been Captain Crunch related. And even those can be terrifying sometimes. But man, yeah. when he digs into his mouth with that scalpel, 
it's I don't know what that feels like, but I can imagine what that feels like. It's yeah, that was a lot. Mm. Mm. That is a rough watch. And uh, and then that's not the end of the scene either, because then he threatens his eyes and he's like poking him in the eyes with the knife. It's it's rough. It's real rough. And and while this is happening, Butterfield is is literally astride his face. Yeah. Which, again, feels like a very Clive Barker choice. Um, But his his crotch is just right. Like Valentin's chin is in his crotch while this is happening. So it's 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 just a lot of discomfort. It's intimate. It's it's both violent and kind of sexy. It's well. I mean, it doesn't help that Butterfield is hot. He is very tr- he is very sexy. Hot guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another another actor that did not really uh, do much past this film. Although he he is he very was in much. There will be blood. He was. He was. <laughs> um, a lot of low budget horror. A lot of TV. I mean, he he just did not do much. You know, past this. Um. And 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 I think that that's that's bad because he's he's really good as the kind of lead antagonist for this because Nix is basically out of the film at this point like he is nowhere close by, um, and it's it's really just Butterfield and his his machinations that are driving the plot. Um, but so he gets it out of Valentin. They go to the desert. They dig up Nix's body. Nix is very much still alive, and and Butterfield takes him back to their compound, which is very and active. Dorothea, still. still the crack house there. is going strong. Going strong. Hard man. to get rid hey, of those believers up, once you set them up. You set up a good crack house, and people are just going to kind of come back. I mean, that's what you're going to. They're I mean, going to come back, and they're going to burn their hair together because that's what they're doing in the crack house oh, when we man. see all of yeah. them. And so, in the director's cut, prior to this stuff happening, is where you see all the people like re like yeah. kill their families and come back to the cult, which again burned into the old brain. It's always going to be there, even though you know. Just a part of the unrated director's cut TVT, and yes, they are they are in full cult mode now. Uh, they are burning hair, cutting hair, cutting themselves. They're just like laughing uh, and so cutting their hair off and throwing it into a fire. You know, so hashtag just cult dude. things. <laughs> just cult things, and uh, I don't know, man. It's it's as an escalation of the cult behavior that we saw at the beginning of the film. It's super effective. Like at this point. At this point, the question you're asking is, is what, how far is this going to go? Like, what are these people going to do? And, and again, Barker kind of subverts expectations with that, which I think is good, but it's, it's final confrontation time. So Swan, Amor, uh, they do rescue Valentin, although I think he dies shortly thereafter. Pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he dies. Um, and so it's, it's really just Amor and, and Swan going to the compound. They know what's happening. They know they're going to resurrect Nix or try to. And, and, and so then we we get a one of the better sequences in the film is Fomka Jansen back in the same room where she was rescued from at the beginning. Like it's the exact same set in the same corner trapped by Butterfield and being forced to watch as Nix is, is resurrected as the, as this, this machine that he was encapsulated in is removed from his head. And the way Barker shoots it, she it's the whole thing. Like she's looking through her fingers like, you know, the mm-hmm. hands over the face, but I can't look away, which I think is a really great reference to honestly what I'm sure is a lot of people told Clive Barker they have to do when they watch his movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it almost feels like a self-reference where like, you know, somebody said, oh, man, I watch Hellraiser, but I have to cover my face. I can't look through that. But then every once in a while I look through my fingers. 
And so, I mean, it's a classic sort of like the way that somebody would watch a horror film. But she is watching the horror film inside the horror film. And it's this interesting sort of additional layer of complexity to the scene that he wouldn't have had to do. He could have just gone to reaction shots of Pomka Jansen being like, oh, ooh, you know, like, again, that's what a typical sort of writer slash director might do. But, you know, she's so terrified and so horrified that, you know, she can only look through her, her slightly open fingers. And, and so Butterfield resurrects Nix. And, and this, I think, is probably the best practical effects sequence in the film, um, although there are some good practical effects throughout. But the, the removal of this thing as it comes off, it just feels weighty and, I don't know, meaty. Like, it just taking it off is, is visceral. Like, it's, it's and, just And Nix is, is disgusting. I mean, yes. his corpse mm. is disgusting. Even though he's alive, it's disgusting. He's alive, but he's not alive. And and you can tell that they, so the, the design of the character, he was kind of already in sort of like weird priest row, well, it was like a bathrobe, but he was in like a, you know, a, a weird bastardization of priest robes to begin with. And so they, Butterfield has prepared something for him. And so he's in almost like a swaddling, you know, like, he's like, like cloud, mummy wraps, you and know? Then... Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, you can tell Parker's probably white angel robe <laughs> uh, yeah big white robe but his face is so his body starts off and it's like blackened from being in the soil but as he resurrects as each piece of the the face mask gets taken off his skin sort of comes back so we get some nice practical effects of you know sort of like skin changing you can tell they probably did some some bladder fills and maybe a little bit of cg assistance but if it is cg assistance it's much better than anything that we've seen previously and so his body comes back kind of, but he's still like covered in dirt and sores and just wrinkled. And it's, it's a suitably gross look, right? Maybe not pinhead levels of like awesome costuming, but it's, it's, it's pretty. Gross. It's extra sad kind of because Butterfield, you know, he's clearly excited to see him again. And mm -hmm. you kind of get the impression that Butterfield wanted a deeper connection to him. Like what Nix yes. apparently has with Swan. He's and he thought that this was his ticket. Immediately, yeah. Nix is just like, eh, fuck you. <laughs> just beats the shit out of him. And that's the great thing. That's what subverts the expectation. You expect this cult to like rise to the occasion and become like his followers. But he's no. like, no, you're just sheep. I'm not interested in you. And he just kills them all. Yeah. Um, which is great. It's terrifying. Again, I, Clive Barker just has like the best affinity for figuring out ways to make me feel uncomfortable by showing me people die. And so Nix kills them by, he first opens a portal underneath him. He grabs Dorothea and he's like hovering in air. Cause of course he can fly just like Swan can. Um, yeah. We saw Swan fly earlier and like even his stage hands were all like, how does he even do that, man? There he goes like, it's mm -hmm. wires. You're like, I didn't set up any wires, you know, like the it's, you could tell Barker's trying to be like, no, you need to understand. He's like flying for real. And so he's flying and he's holding Dorothea and like the ground opens up beneath him and it's just like a portal to hell or something. And his followers are all like, yeah, portal to hell. This is amazing. And he's like made them kneel on bottles. He like made them break a bunch of bottles and they had to kneel on them to show their, their like willingness to serve or something. And so they're all like getting super excited about the portal to hell. And then he makes it rain and it makes the dirt floor of the, Again, one of the things you probably question is why does this house have a dirt floor? It has a dirt floor for this scene. Yeah. Because he needed 
to have this apparently. So he makes it rain and the dirt floor turns to mud and they all sink in and they all basically get suffocated in the mud and die in the dirt. <laughs> yeah. He has take returned. That, cultists. <laughs> Welcome back. And, and it's just, it's, it's disturbing. And they're all like all screaming at him. Like, what are you doing? Why would you do this to us? There's even a guy in the back who's just like, just constantly screaming. Fuck you. <laughs> He's just like, fuck you. Fuck you. And then he dies. You know, it's like, and it's 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 really just this great inversion where you 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 see that these people have invested their entire selves into this and it's all for nothing because and Hellraiser kind of plays with this too like it's just this unfeeling unemotional uncaring like true evil has no concern has no affection for anyone and and it's just about him and Swan and so it's it's set up as this kind of like these two were going to be together after the apocalypse. That was the plan. And they were going to kill everyone else and it would just be them. And, and it's again, kind of beautiful, a little bit homoerotic, I suppose. Although I think Parker's sort of intended, intending us to see this as something beyond just that relationship, although that would have been a part of it. And so it really does become Nick's versus Swan and, and Nick's sort of Swan appears. They, they have a brief conversation and then Nick's basically like, crushes his internal organs just kills him or comes close to killing him Demore is kind of running around he's got his pistol it's useless sort of <laughs> at least for most of the what he's doing uh and everything kind of comes to a head with nixon and, and dorothea and can you kill a god right can you end someone that has surpassed the plane of existence and and the real answer is not really um they they kind of shoot him at the end, he abuses Butterfield, as you said. Like he just dismisses him almost completely before he kills everybody else. But Butterfield's still, you know, kind of fighting for him. Uh, which I guess that's really Demore's main contribution to the end. Is he? He's the one who kills Butterfield. Um, but again, I, I kind of, I kind of like that because this really isn't Demore's fight. No. No. Like what is De- what is Demore gonna do against somebody like Nix? Right. It's he's it's just been Marvel wrapped up in all of this. Problem. Yeah, he's just he's just a part of what's going on. And at this point, he's mostly hanging around to try and get Dorothea out of it alive. And and that's kind of nice. I like the pure intentionality of of Demore's character at that stage. And I also love that Nix isn't really angry at Swan, except for the fact that he loves Dorothea. Yeah, <laughs> that's what he's pissed off about. It's like, you just don't get it. You like, I, I think that's even what he says is like, you just don't get it. You know, like it's just supposed to be us, you know? So he kills Swan with his, his amazing psychic powers and, and, you know, th- seemingly that's, that's it. Um, I'm trying to remember. I mean, this, I watched this a few days ago, but it's been a bit. Nix kind of does the thing that he did with Swan at the beginning. He kind of makes Demore see. Yeah, he digs his fingers in. Yeah, something and terrible makes him see the terrible things of the world. And then Dorothea, who shot Nix the first time, uh, shoots him again in his. I, I'm guessing it's a reference to his third eye, or like a weird. Yeah, but it looks like sort a of fucked up take on it. <laughs> it's a forehead bubble. Uh, Nix. Nixon is amazing forehead butthole. <laughs> shoot him in the butthole. <laughs> shoot him in the forehead butthole. Um, <laughs> I I also want to feel like a because li- I 
I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't know Clive Barker, but it feels like Clive Barker is a student of this genre. It feels like he is very aware of not only horror writing, but also horror cinema. And I couldn't help but feel a little bit like this, this, you know, the forehead butthole, the third eye, whatever you want to call it. It, it smacked a little bit of From Beyond to me. Yeah. Um, so From Beyond, if, if you're unfamiliar, is is one of the sort of Stuart Gordon HP Lovecraft adaptations from the early to mid 80s, including Reanimator. Just the the pinnacle of body horror. And, you know, very famously in that film, they are exploring an idea that that Lovecraft explored. Um, because we didn't we didn't know for a long time what the pineal gland did in the brain. We knew it was there, we knew it was important. Now we know it's related it to like growth hormone and it's <laughs> and and so there was this sort of this was this sort of belief at the time that it might have been psychic power, you know, nexus, something like that. And so from beyond runs with that idea, even though it had been discounted, but it's an interesting concept. And eventually at the end of that movie, Jeffrey Combs goes crazy and his pineal gland goes outside of his brain and he starts using it to like eat people. Um, It's, it's one of the more, you know, screwed up components of that movie. And and I just feel like this is playing on it like a little bit, at least a little bit. Um, so then Nick starts going, undergoing a, a kind of additional transformation and, and the practical effects here are really good. Uh, like his skin is exploding in some way. Um, and it's, it's like the, the evil inside of him is being sort of revealed and he turns into this, it, it, a monster. I mean, it's a monster. I mean, he turns into a monster basically. Yeah. Um, but it's cool. There's a lot of like splitting and opening, you know, like sort of like revealing the stuff within kind of thing. Um, and it's it's a neat effect. I, I I found it pretty, pretty challenging to watch. It was not an enjoyable experience to watch it happen, which I imagine was the point. Um, and and then Swan gets his who is not dead. He's he's, he's dying. Super, super, <laughs> he is not in good shape, um, but he has just enough power left to hover swan or not swan uh, to hover more up to Nix. He kind of grabs him, whatever has happened to his face sort of manipulates it and then pushes him down the pit that he opened earlier, which apparently goes straight to hell. Yeah. It's just a direct line, no stops express elevator to hell. Down. Um, and, and he burns in molten lava and dies presumably. And then Swan dies shortly thereafter. And, and Damore, who, again, is, has been a total onlooker in all of this, not really involved, uh, is is left to pick up the pieces with Dorothea. Um, I will say that the hovering effects were not good. It was obviously, obviously just Scott Bakula standing on a moving platform, probably being pulled by a rope by some poor production assistant. But it it's enough, right? It's It's enough to sort of convey the idea. But in true horror movie fashion, because this is a true horror movie, uh, Nix has kind of one final attempt to uh, enact his revenge. And so Bakula sees that some part of Nix, a spirit, a force, something is coming back up to the surface. And we think it's coming after them, but it's not. Um, it's consuming the place, right? I guess it's supposed to be it's a little bit of what happens with Hellraiser, right? When the box is closed, all of the stuff goes back in the box and it's like nothing happened. Right. And that's kind of what's happening here, I guess. 
um, where like Swan and the crack house and, <laughs> and Nick's are like inevitably tied and, and we're just kind of cleaning up the pieces here. Um, so Swan's body gets lifted up and then we get another unfortunate CG shot. It's, it's better than the, it's better than the geometry man. Yeah. CG. It, it is better but than that. But it's still bad. It's still real bad, uh, but it basically is Kevin O'Connor's face getting sort of torn away in pieces, like Eel. the skin comes off. But, but it, it just doesn't gets... look very scary because it looks fake. Yeah. And, you know, Dorothy and Amor are fine because, again, this wasn't about them. The hole closes in the earth so nobody else can fall into the direct elevator to hell, which is probably good. Yeah. I mean, you don't want that kind of thing hanging around out in the desert near crack houses. Um, But then we get this weird sequence at the end and i don't really know what barker is trying to do here what do you, so we get a little ending montage we've got some, some daniel von bargen you know his nick's character is is talking what did you what did you make of it i don't, I don't know i don't i don't want to taint you with my own ideas before i feel like this is one of those they wouldn't let me put the ending or the scenes in this movie that I wanted to put in this movie. So we'll end it with a montage <laughs> of like shots of the crack house and him talking. But I also got the impression yeah. that it was, uh, this isn't really over because it can't really ever be over. Like there's still something yeah. left behind. Cause um, otherwise, you know, the, the house is still standing and yes, they are both dead, but we've already seen these characters die without dying. Right. Death is not the end for people yeah. who have this power, um, which is a very Clive Barkery thing. Like, I don't want to make it seem like, I mean, I, isn't that like the subtitle to one of the Hellraiser, Hellraiser movies? Mm. Death is not the yeah. end or something. <laughs> something horrible like, it's, like that. It's, it's a theme, you know, but it, it it's just, it's real clunky. And, and one of the things this movie needed is to nail the ending. And I think the rest of the ending is fine. Like the conflict, the final confrontation is, is okay. Again, the action is shot badly. It's, it's not good, but the, the, you know, thematic moves of the final confrontation are fine. Like you certainly understand the gravity of what's going on. Right. It's very disgusting and you know, all that's good. But if he wanted to convey this battle between good and evil is infinite and it will never stop. I don't know. I th I feel like there would, be would have been better ways to do it. Yeah. Like this isn't executed you know, very well, but I kind of get what it's trying no. to do. Right. It's, it's the standard talkie montage. You know, I've going to, I've got this footage. I can have some, some character dialogue over it to convey an idea, but I, I almost wish that we would have what I imagine would have worked better for me. And this is only me is that, you know, we, we hard stop, you know, we see Demore and Dorothea, you know, making their way across the desert to escape Crackhouse land or wherever they are. That's fine, right? We need, you know, closure for those characters. But then we we fade in on another young magician somewhere, right? And and again, this is risky because you got to introduce new characters. I, I get it. But another, maybe even it's not even a, a magician we ever see their face, right? We just see somebody walking into a room full of old books or some dumb shit. They pull the book off and inside is a spell that, you know, allows them to do something and they open up the book and, and, you know, you can keep the voiceover or whatever, but just something to show that this, this, this battle, this will, yeah, this it, isn't it just, over. Yeah. Like the magic or, or the darkness that fueled this 
it's going to happen again. There's going to be another person who grew up obsessed with magic that's going to fall into this trap. And, you know, something like that may have worked a bit better to sort of express this idea. But, you know, it's it's fine. It's functional. It's just not super satisfying. And I don't think it's for a film that has been very clear about what it's been trying to do in most of its scenes. It seems sort of unrealistically vague or, or unsatisfyingly vague. So a, a bit of a, a bit of a meh ending in terms of the, the overall structure of the story. But so I guess that, I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, what, um, what sort of like overall thoughts do you have on the film? Like what are the things that you think you mostly take away from it? Well, I mostly enjoy all of the performances. I like all the people in this movie. I really, I just, I kind of go back to, to where I started with boy I wish this had had more support and more I don't know more money is it but maybe just more care put into the production so that the final product was a little less haphazard in parts because Mm -hmm. it deserves better I feel like this movie deserves better than it got maybe yeah, I mean, even though Bar- Barker is the one that's steering the ship and it's his story, it feels like, feel like the story itself is underserved. <laughs> Somebody should have stepped yeah. in and helped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Clive Barker would have, I, I mean, and I, I get why this doesn't happen. Like, the, it is only recently that Hollywood has started to be okay with co-directors. Mm-hmm. Like Hollywood does not like co-directors. It's even still like they want to direct. They want to give credit to one person for directing that film. That's the way it's always been set up. The the Wachowskis were actually one of the first. Uh, Wachowskis and the Coen brothers were the the two. You know, groups that basically said no. We are going to be credited as a team because we're a team. And for and that's why the Coen brothers didn't win an Oscar for like thirty years is because they didn't want to give an Oscar for best director to two people. Yeah. It's not called best directors. It's called best director. And so um, I, I really think that Clive Barker would have benefited from, and this may not be the best example, but like the Robert Rodriguez, Frank Miller relationship on Sin City, yeah. which I don't, I don't love Sin no. City. I don't think it's a great film, but, but Rodriguez was aware enough of how indebted he was to Miller as the writer and the visual stylist in the comic book for the film that he said, I'm going to make you my co-director. I don't know if I, I still feel like Robert Rodriguez directed that movie, but he said, Hey, like this is a part. And I feel like Clive Barker would have been, if it had been more acceptable at that time, would have been the perfect guy to, to, to put with another director that was more experienced and more capable and say like, we're going to do this together, right? I'm going to share all of my ideas you're going to share all of yours. We're going to blend our, our efforts. Make it a true collaboration. And then we're going to create this exactly, right? Because it is obvious to me from this that even without a level of technical precision, Barker is an incredible production designer, um, an incredible eye for visual design and visual layout. But it's just the I mean, execution like, he, that seems to fall flat. Right. It's the actual directing the movie part. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Like I have like a great idea else. for a movie. My vision is perfect, but uh, <laughs> the thing. But the technical, <laughs> the technical and organizational challenges of making a film, and and how do you execute a thing and make it look good on camera? That's that's the risky part. 
And again, Hellraiser, I, I think is, you know, we've talked about lightning in a bottle for lots of different projects. Hellraiser is a bit of lightning in a bottle, right? It just worked. And there are still weaknesses in that film, like the ending with all of the, the like uh, people on the beds coming out and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's fine. <laughs> like, okay. you know, but it's not executed super well. And it's, you know, there are parts of it that are kind of weak. Um, you know, it's, but it's, it's a great visual scene. Like it's an interesting visual look and that's what Barker's good at. So I feel like it would, this, this film, because this film's trying to do a lot more than something like Hellraiser is. This is a big movie, um, in, in terms of its scope and in terms of the genres that it's trying to blend because it wants to be that hard boiled noir detective thriller desperately. And it does a pretty good job of it, but it also wants to be this, this mystical magical film. And it also wants to be this like cult demon possession film. And it's a lot to manage way more than I think Barker had managed on any projects before. Although Nightbreed probably gets a little bit close with all of the makeup effects that he had. But clearly that wasn't successful either, (laughs) but that didn't work either. I mean, like that's true. Uh, so this, so I'll leave it at this. I, I love this movie, Same. but it is an irrational love. Yeah. It is not a love it's, born out of quality. It's a love of like, man, this could have been huge, yes. but instead and we just got an okay it, movie. And the things that it does pull off are really good. Yeah. Scott Bakula is great mm-hmm. in this, like legitimately great to the point that I wish that other Harry Demore stories had been told. Um, and apparently there was some effort. There have been people who have tried to take that Harry Demore character and bring them back. There was like a TV series like being pitched at one point focused on his adventures, which God, I would watch the ever loving shit out of that. Um, Cause again, detective hard boiled dealing with like demons and magic and stuff. Oh man, that's, you're just hitting the pleasure button it's at the center good. of my brain. It's you're just it's there and waiting to be pushed over and over again, just injected into my veins. Um, but yes, I I think he he's a huge reason to watch this. I think Daniel von Bargen is a reason to watch mm-hmm. this. He's not in this very much, but he's but great. He in every is scene he's so in. memorable. Yes, and and I I looked up some stuff on him because. I hadn't seen him in a long time. You know, he was one of those guys that was kind of all over the place, TV, movies, little bit parts here and there, you know, the, a working actor, right? The, a, a, Hey, I know that guy from that thing mm-hmm. kind of actor. And, and unfortunately he, he left Hollywood in the late two thousands. Uh, apparently he had severe diabetes. Um, later in his life, uh, he lost a leg to it. And then, from what I can tell, just sort of died in poverty, which makes me so sad. Yeah. Um, because what a present. Yeah. Right. I mean, in, you know, you and I were both classroom teachers at one point and, and we taught mythology, we taught the Odyssey. So we would watch sequences from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and go through that film. And he's fantastic. I, I don't think I ever had a class where at least, several students said man that guy's really good it's scary like he's so scary and intimidating as the devil because once you know it's revealed that oh he's he's kind of poseidon right you know he's the the villainous force that's chasing the heroes um 
you know, in, in the film, it's just Satan. It's the it's you know, they're doing a lot of things. of the, the Coen brothers. It's <laughs> yeah, the Coen brothers are very loosely at it, adapting it. I don't want to get too into the specifics because it's whatever. But he's really good in that part, and much like this, he's not in that movie much, but you will not forget mm-hmm. him in those moments. And it's just, I don't know, to to read about the end that he came to that it just makes me really sad because yeah. I think he's an actor that deserved a lot more. A lot more credit and praise. And he deserved a lot more roles like this. Where he could be more of a presence. You know, he he deserved better than just his Seinfeld run. Right. And I'm glad he had that because he will always be remembered as part of Seinfeld, which, of course, was a, you know, huge huge, thing. Huge thing. And and will always exist. And, And so in a way, I suppose he will always exist as well. But um just one of those actors that I, I wish, you know, had gotten a bit more notoriety. Um, and then the last one I'll, I'll mention just as a final note is I think uh, Kevin J. O'Connor is great in this. He's again, not in it much. And, and what he is, is, is sort of very nervous and frightened and, you know, tortured, but you know, this is several years before he would get the mummy, which is where most people know him from. Uh, and then his further collaborations with Stephen Summers and deep rising and Van Helsing and, so on and so forth. Um, but he's been also been around for a long time. And uh, I just, I really like his presence yeah. as well. Everybody in I this think, movie is great. <laughs> I, I think Paul Thomas Anderson knows this movie. <laughs> I, I think he does. Because both Kevin J. O'Connor and the guy who played Butterfield are in There Will Be Blood. And that just... <laughs> I mean, I know it's Hollywood. I know you're looking at a small subset of actors you know, kind of all doing stuff and, and being available for projects. And I know Paul Thomas Anderson likes to shoot in Southern California. So, you know, you've got that component of it too, that you hire actors that are close, but it just seems weird to me that two people from Lord of illusions would show up in the same <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Strange. I, it's just a little weird, but you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is, is he's about my age, a little bit older and it seems like he would have also stumbled across something like Lord of Illusions in uh, in 95 and been like, oh, that's pretty badass. I like uh, all I the people it, in this movie. I, I like all the people in this movie. They're all really good. This is, a, this is some solid casting. Uh, again, that that seems uh, I'm obviously in the fantasy that, of our minds. We would love to think in that, my it, mind, that it went that way. Exactly. I like to think that PTA sitting around with Maya Rudolph on a Thursday night being like, what do you want to do tonight? Ah. <sighs> Lord of Illusions on Tubi. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. Because um, that makes PTA seem like a very accessible dude. And I, I like to think of him that way. But in any case. Um, so uh, a strong recommend from me. But not because I feel like the film is is a hidden gem necessarily. I don't know if it's that. But I will recommend it on the sole fact that this is the type of movie exactly that deserves to be remade. Yeah. That deserves to be rediscovered so that it can be reapproached with new technology, new understanding and a fresh eye for this material because I think there is an audience more of an audience than there was in 1995. Mystical story. I think so. Um and if not a film, then I think the world of Harry Demore is so rife for like a Hulu limited original series. Yeah, well, we're or turning all kinds of stupid like, stuff into TV shows. 
Exactly. Like, look at all the crap that we're turning into TV shows. And I, I just, I really feel like that would be fun. Uh, have Scott Bakula come back as like his eight. And he like would. His handler or something. <laughs> he, would. he would totally do it. He would totally do it. And that would be wonderful. But in any case, so a, a pretty solid recommend for me. This is a personal fave. This film rests near and dear to my heart, despite all of its many flaws. I think it's a lot of fun. So what about you? Uh, I also recommend this movie for, for similar reasons. I feel like it it could have been so much more, and I would love to see it made into more. That would be really cool. I also would like to see more things done with just Clive Barker's work that's not Hellraiser. Yes, uh, Clive Barker has an incredibly varied world of fiction. Uh, obviously, most of it's fantasy with tinges of horror, um, some of it's straight horror. A lot of his later stuff was more sort of fantasy. He, he's really big into building these sort of fanciful worlds. Which seems like it would be. That lay between the worlds. Really you know, perfect like. for, you know, a, a series. So mm-hmm. somebody make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Weave World, um, you know, The Great and Secret Show, which I guess is the, the second book of the Book of the Art series. Um, all of those. Very cool. You know, like just. People setting up these hidden cities where, you know, stuff happens and it's magical. And like, yeah, magic just, would you know, be really cool. such a great yeah. anything. <laughs> and I haven't read a magic in a long time. Do something with it. It's huge. <laughs> it's so big. Um, yeah. So hopefully we get a little bit of a Clyde Barker renaissance. You know, yeah. you know Lorber, uh, Scream Factory, Arrow. Somebody put out a Blu-ray of this. I will buy the hell out of it. Yeah. I, there are literally dozens of us <laughs> who will buy it. I can't promise more than that, but there are dozens of us who will buy a special edition Blu-ray of Lord of Illusions uh, or 4K. Oh, 4K. Oh, that's mm, that CG scene would look so bad in 4K. I can't even imagine how terrible that would look, but you want to see watch it. it. It would be fine. I, 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 I deserve, I mean, I'm an American. I deserve the opportunity to see that in 4K. Gosh, darn it. I deserve it. Just by the fact that I exist. Uh, all right. So a uh, solid recommend from us. Uh, Clive Barker is, uh, you know, while he may have never achieved truly to that level of success promised by that blurb from Stephen King, that he was the future of horror. I know for me, and I, I think for you too, based on how well I know you and how well <laughs> you know me, um, I I think Clive Barker did a lot to shape our understanding of horror and and i think that even if he did not again you know reach the heights promised by that initial blurb i think he is is a fascinating figure in the world of horror because the other movie we didn't talk about is midnight meat train Mm -hmm. which we should probably just do an episode on because midnight meat train is a thing (laughs) uh it is a hell of a thing uh young bradley cooper before he was you know bradley cooper Mm -hmm. And Vinnie Jones as a guy who murders people with a, a meat mallet on subway trains. Oh man, that would be something. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot. It is a lot, but it's also really good. So another Clive Barker, you know, film. He didn't direct it, but he, he was involved in the production of it, uh, at least in some ways. Yeah, that's another one. Go check that one out too. Uh, I don't know if it's on Tubi. I, I assume it <laughs> Everything's is. On Tubi. Everything's on Tubi. <laughs> Maybe on Pluto TV. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, all right, so I, I guess that'll wrap it up. Uh, our discussion to both of Clive Barker as a, a horror maven of, his, of the highest order and also this lovely little strange film from 1995 with everybody's favorite Star Trek captain, <laughs> Scott Bakula, and uh, a host of other really solid character actors. So um, if someone wants to find you on the internet to tell you just how awesome they also think Lord of Illusions is, because that's really the only reaction you can have. Where can they do that? I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator. And if you want to find me and tell me the same thing and how right I am about all my opinions mm-hmm. about this film and how correct we've been over the course of the last, you know, nearly three hours discussing Clive Barker and, we took you know, the just, words right just how amazing. It's, yeah, like, you know, just the correctness of these opinions and how much you want to share them. Um, you can get a hold of me at T Baskin. Uh, you can get us at F Peace Theater together if you want to respond to our podcast uh, uh, Twitter handle there. And of course, you can email us at failurepeace at gmail.com. Uh, well, we will return in the very near future to discuss another potential failure piece, the misbegotten children of Hollywood that have been shoved into a corner mm-hmm. and beaten by a baboon when they misbehave. Um, which is really the only thing that can happen. Uh, Everybody loves a good baboon in a film. Why not just put that in there and not reference it ever again? That seems like a great idea. I love it. The cult baboon. Every, every good culture. (laughs) Their own baboon. (laughs) Oh, Clive Barker, I love you. (laughs) Hashtag just cult things, which is definitely going into the Twitter (laughs) post that I made here in a little while. Hashtag. Uh, Anyway. Uh, well, thanks for listening, and uh, we will be back, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.